podcast starts. Listeners, welcome if this is your first time listening to us, and welcome back. If you're a returning listener, thanks for sticking with us. This is a podcast that talks about horror. Horror in film, TV, other media, other items which we think of as adjacent to horror, and sometimes other things from our lives which we'd like to talk about just because that's who we are. Our discussions aim to be fun, intelligent, and hopefully useful if your interest in horror texts comes from a creative or an academic perspective, but be warned. We do tend to swear occasionally, and if it's anything less offensive than the C-word, it won't get bleeped. So if you are still able to go into your place of work, we may not be safe for it. In this episode, we're doing something we've wanted to do for a very long time on this show. Talk about the TV series Hannibal. Now, I'm T.D. Velasquez in Greater Manchester. As always, you can call me Dan. I have the great pleasure this week of being joined by... Uh, Kirsty Warrow in Shropshire. Also by... Ian Winterton in Cheshire. And finally... Stella in Manchester. I I beg to differ with you there, Stella. I think we should give you your full title for once, Dr Stella Gaynor (laughs) in Manchester. Manchester. (laughs) Because later in this episode we're going to have two other doctors... Um, talking <laughs> about Hannibal and they get their full titles. So oh, right then. <laughs> you've always been wonderfully humble about your qualifications. So. I never knew you were a doctor. I am, yeah. I have uh, a ridiculous amount of letters after my name. Oh, wow. Like, all of them. <laughs> it would wow. appear. Uh, I, 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 I need well. a minute to think about what they are. What is it? It's B A M A F H E A. PG cap, PhD. Wow. <laughs> wow. That's stupid. All the letters. <laughs> <laughs> That's a long tattoo. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well. Guys, it feels like we've been away for a little bit. Of course, we haven't. Yeah. But l- last week, uh, Kirsty and I were recording with um, our guests, who the listener will hear shortly, uh, Dr. Rebecca Williams and Dr. Laurie Hitchcock Morimoto. Um, but we didn't get to record with you guys um it, and it just so I, I suppose that only means two weeks but it just seems like such a long time how are you both uh ian tired. and stella i'm talking to i'm tired <laughs> but i'm okay and also my my son has gone back to school a week early so uh oh. so i'm making lots of people jealous so that's that's like having suddenly the day opens up <laughs> Instead of writing from six to nine and then homeschooling, I'm now like taking him to school and writing till three o'clock, wow. <laughs> which wow. is which is great. Yeah, really. So, uh, yeah, it's like it's like my it's like I've just got years and years put back on my life. <laughs> so wow, we shall see. But, yeah. We can feel the vim, marvelous. <laughs> How about you, Stella? Uh, well. Like Ian, I am tired, <laughs> but I'm okay. <laughs> uh, my daughter's not gone back to school yet. She's in high school. She's going back next Friday, the 12th, for a day. And then the following week, she'll be back in full time. But um, Ian, is your kids, are they having to do swab tests twice a week? My older ones are that don't live with me. but Yeah, because she's having to Yeah, the first day at school herself. is having their tests. Oh, really? Yeah, she has to do it on herself mm. twice in the first week and then twice at home all the weeks wow. after that. 
So she's... Um, sounds hardcore. Not as impressed with that, but I, I have no. done the test on her before. Mm. Um, she took part in a study in some over the summer, so I had to do the swab test on her before, and I felt I, really mean <laughs> doing it because yeah. she was just like, <laughs> so I was putting a swab in her mouth. I just kept Ugh. sneezing every time. Every yeah. time I've ever mm. done, I just sneeze. Mm. I can't be good. Like, yeah. Can I can I sh- share the strategy at my college? Yes. <laughs> so I work at a sixteen to nineteen FE tertiary college, um, and so over the next few weeks. They are not having any timetable lessons at all. Mm. We're going asynchronous for the first time in lockdown. Um, and they are having to travel to college in order to get three tests mm. over the course of that two weeks. And when they've had the third test, uh, they can then have uh, the home testing kits, which yeah. they'll be expected to do. They're being sent out. So, yes, yeah, so we've got two weeks off timetable, which wow, just, you know, it's craziness. Um, That's one way so, of doing it. Yeah. So yeah. So I'm kind of like in, in, on one half of my brain, I'm thinking, oh, I've got no teaching. I don't have all this time. And then the other half of my brain is they'll be like, oh, they'll be in contact all the time. <laughs> yeah. I want to help all the time. There will be no division between my time and you know. So yeah, uh, so that's interesting. But, uh, <laughs> I think she's she's prepared to do it though because she's dying to go back to school. Yeah. So she's like, yeah, well. Her take on it is once I've done it the first couple of times, it'll be fine. So you don't realise till they've gone back quite how much they've missed it. They don't know themselves because yeah. they've hibernated. Yeah, definitely. And they just yeah. go. Yeah, it's just can't like, wait. You just start gabbling and like picking up a million new words. Just yeah. a few days. <laughs> They're gonna be on the ceiling, aren't they, for 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 a while? Yeah. I was meant to with one of my my year groups they were they're not meant my to... ceiling so I'm <laughs> <laughs> well, we're meant to do a, a kind of a timed assessment on in the i've got planned for the the lesson they come back or at least that that's what i'd got planned for that you know lesson sort of generally and i've had to change it because i just think i can't i can't like first time they're all in a room together i can't <laughs> go right now you've got to be quiet for uh, test <laughs> Con- concentrate <laughs> um so you know they're getting off you know, with having that as homework instead. Right. So yeah, it's going to be chaos. But I'm anyway, a school this, teacher. This, this, <laughs> it's yeah. like an education anyway, this podcast. Is a different podcast. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then I it's killed the horror. <laughs> Kirsty, I do feel a little bit guilty because I just pointedly said, and how are you all? And then I went, I mean, Ian and Stella. So it's fine. I, I am interested uh, in, in your welfare as well, Kirsty. Well, you know, I mean, we're doing a Hannibal podcast, so I'm pretty good. <laughs> good. Well, that's what I was assuming. That's what I was assuming. Yeah. Good segue. So, yeah. Well, yeah, well, nice. well. Before I we, also, bef- I, I quite enjoy the fact we're about to do a Hannibal podcast. That's okay, good. I'm glad I'm not. I'm not on my own in that. That's good. Yeah. Before we segue into that, though, <laughs> we we just have some news to mention. Stella, you, there was something on your mind. Yes, <coughs> yes, rather. Sorry, joking on myself. Um, I got. Uh, my boss told me today that um, I've, cause I've suggested that I wanted to do a, a new module at the university, a horror media module, and they've said yes, and it's going ahead, and it's gone live now, and the students can choose it if they want to Yay! for their third year final theory module. So that's very exciting. So that well means done. as well, if anybody remembers my stress um, last summer, that I still um, will have a job in September because I'm on these rolling contracts and I never know. But oh, now, brilliant. in March, I know I've still got a job and part of it will be teaching my own brand new horror module. Oh, wow. So brilliant. that's exciting. Well done. Oh, so come to the University of Salford. <laughs> yeah. <coughs> I've stopped joking now. 
Oh dear. I'm all right. <clears throat> you don't, you don't, you don't, so you don't have an ear. No, I'm all right. To look. No, no, no. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, good to know. Great news, Stella. Um, any other news before we go on? I just want to mention that possible news by the time this podcast goes out is that maybe I will have been vaccinated. Yay! I've got an appointment for tomorrow, but you never know. The last oh, wow. one, the last one, my mum had was cancelled with two hours' notice. Oh, so oh my god! I, I, I think there are issues going on with how much vaccine supply is around and and how long it can yeah. be kept for, and therefore they keep moving appointments around. But mm-hmm. so, yeah. Um, oh, fingers was, crossed. Thank yeah. you. I'm actually kind of looking forward to that. Yeah. So. Um, Physical yeah. contact with somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> Seen somebody else in three dimensions. <laughs> well, probably freak me out. <coughs> so, so I think it's time to move on to the big topic of the episode. Um, Kirsty, I think yes. it's only right for me to hand <laughs> over to you, but I'm going to do so with this caveat. Not only are you the person who has been delighted to talk about Hannibal on nearly every episode we've ever done of this podcast, <laughs> but you're also a published author on the subject. Well, yeah, I am now. Only very recently, though. <laughs> Although I think I read, wrote that chapter about three, four years ago, so it's, it's been <laughs> oh, a while right. coming. It takes, takes yeah. a while, doesn't it? It does, yeah. Um, yeah, so yeah, the book uh, is called Hannibal for Dinner. Um, it's a collection of interviews and um, essays about um, this particular incarnation of uh, Hannibal. Um, yeah, so I'm very delighted. I have not actually got a physical copy yet. I know it exists in the world, um, but I have yet to actually kind of hold one. So I will be. Let's read it yet, over. <laughs> you, I think it's on, it's, you you it on it. Kindle. No, <laughs> it's quite expensive, but I think you can get a Kindle version, which is cheaper. Oh, okay. um, so, yeah, so yeah, it'd be lovely to actually read it yeah, in yeah. print. I mean, I've read it before, obviously, and I've got a copy that's signed <laughs> that's by Max Nicholson as well. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> what, did the publishers arrange for them all to be signed? No, so we went to, he was at a, a kind of uh, a con at the NE, NEC a couple of years ago, and so obviously we went, um, and I took, <laughs> this is how much of a fan of all I was, I took uh, two copies, printed copies of uh, the essay, got him to sign one, oh, and yeah. gave him another one, and then kind of later, uh, he was re- I saw him, he was reading it, and I was, I was made up, <laughs> made up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, can I just say, oh, uh, like a minute, a minute late, but can I just say clang? <laughs> Cause yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you know, yes. It wasn't me. <laughs> it no, wasn't Ian. I was Ian listening to the story week. and then no. I realised, yeah. oh no, we're developing. <laughs> so yeah. there'll be a link in the show notes for that book. We encourage yes. our readers to at least look at the link, even if it is quite expensive. But the Kindle option sounds good. Yes. Um, if any okay. of you are work in a university or college, though, you can get your institution to buy it and put it in their library. Oh. Is it going to be online? That's what I was going to ask. Can we watch it? Can we read it through Open Athens or whatever it's called? Uh, I don't know. On our universities. Oh, uh, who knows? Who knows? We should put your name in. Yeah. Pop up those <laughs> yes. Mm. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> so, 
of in danger of slipping back into the education podcast yes. Yes. Oh, yeah. 10 minutes <laughs> yeah. ago. So, Kirsty, why don't yes. you tell us a bit about Hannibal and, and why you've desperately wanted to talk about it for so long. <laughs> okay, so um, Hannibal then. So um, Hannibal fits into a, in order to sort of kind of jump on what Sandler usually does, sit, uh, fits into a context of uh, American quality television in the, you know, kind of uh, early 20th century, kind of HBO doing its thing, uh, AMC kind of, you know, doing something similar. Um, so that kind of premium cable, everything looks amazing, lots of money, and it's challenging, it's dynamic. So uh, NBC, um, commercial network, um, or commercial broadcaster in the States, looked at all that stuff and basically kind of thought, oh, we, but we want some of that pie, please. Um, so they started developing or looking for different properties that could kind of develop in a, in a similarly cinematic, interesting, complex way. Um, they started prepping um, Hannibal in 2011. Um, they bought on um, Brian Fuller, who was uh, been a writer, uh, director on Heroes, which was one of NBC's mm. big hits. Um, but he was also the showrunner and creator of um, shows like Dead Like Me, Pushing Daisies, which I love, um, and Wonderfuls, uh, amongst other things. Um, so NBC kind of basically ordered, pretty much went straight to series, into a pilot. They just on the basis of this, the, the script for the first episode, they gave it a full series order. Um, and the, the kind of interesting thing, of course, is that, and we, we talk a little bit about this um, as part of the discussion with Laurie and Rebecca, is the, that um, uh, the De Laurentiis, Dino De Laurentiis and the De Laurentiis company um, owned the rights to um, not all of Thomas Harris's uh, Hannibal Lecter novels um, and had developed, you know, kind of been the production company behind things like um, uh, Ridley Scott's Hannibal film, um, Manhunter, and those kind of iterations, but not crucially, Silence of the Lambs. Um, so there is a kind of Clarice Starling shaped hole in terms of what they could develop. Um, so the you know the kind of the the approach that Brian Fuller took to it it was he called it a sort of DJ mashup approach, which was you know kind of taking these elements from the, the novels, trying to kind of allude and point at you know the space left by Clarice, um, and yeah so the kind of the result was was Hannibal thirty nine episodes ran for three seasons. Um, between 2013 and 2015. Um, increasingly, what happened um, was that people kind of kept looking at it and going, why is this on television? Uh, or at least, why is this on broadcast, free to view American television? Because it is Baroque and gorgeous, but very nasty in places. It's kind of has a quite oppressive atmosphere um which you know kind of was developed a little bit initially by david slade in terms of its visual style who directed hard candy in 30 days of night and some of the one of the twilight films as well um and you know kind of he was really important in sort of developing the kind of look of the show initially um 
So, yeah, what else do you need to know? The cast is amazing, obviously. So Han- uh, Hannibal Lecter himself, played by uh, Danish actor Mass Mikkelsen, um, who, you know, is uh, probably at that point best known to American audiences as Le Chief um, from Casino Royale, um, but uh, had obviously kind of big career in in, um, in Europe. Um, and Hugh Dancy, who, you know, kind of British actor, had done some stuff, which has now fallen out of my head. But there we go. <laughs> um, I am... Um... Uh, I'm happy to admit that I know nothing of Hugh Dancy's prior career at all. Yeah, well, they were actually both in um, uh, the uh, King Arthur film with Clive Owen. Oh, right. And they were both, yeah, kind of not, you know, the sort of the the original knights. So they they knew each other from that and they had this kind of friendship um, that, um, you know, kind of... Brian Fuller. Can I just say, I haven't met them, but I have met everybody else in that Clive Owen film. Clive Owen, Gary Brookheimer, and Ray Winston. This is interesting, actually, kind of. Sorry. The one who kept calling Yo Yo. What's his name? The He plays Lancelot in that film. I haven't seen Oh, that, um, so. uh, you and Griffith. Yeah, yeah, and I got the impression he got bullied because uh, Hugh, Hugh uh, Ray Winston kept going, yeah, yo, yo, we call you yo, yo, all the way through. Uh, and he was like, yes, yes, you did. Yeah. Bastard. Bless him. Expression on his face. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, yeah. But, um, so it, just just to go back to Hannibal. Yeah. Then, um, <laughs> I just they, thought they, I'd get the clanging. <laughs> <laughs> the, one of the it's interesting one, possibilities for this um, for the show was that um, one of the kind of that the, they almost cast but didn't um, as Lecter was David Tennant. Yes, I did know that. And that you know, so that was, I mean, that would have been a really interesting show. And I'm you know, kind of I wonder whether or not it might have had slightly more longevity with a, a an actor that you know, kind of one of the criticisms of the show was that it you know that. Um, Mass's accent is not terribly easy to understand. You have to tune your ear into it. I think that's a bit unfair, but there we go. Um, yeah, so the, yeah, so it was. Um, I don't know what I, else to say about it other than it's amazing. It looks like it has these big, you know, kind of baroque murder tableaus. Um, it's you know, kind of playing with the characters that if you've seen the other versions of of uh, Red Dragon. Man, you know, Manhunter, Hannibal, whatever, it's all, they're all there. Um, but, you know, some of them have been race flipped and gender flipped and it feels much more contemporary. Um, and because of who Brian Fuller is, it also feels very queer. Um, and that's a, you know, a thing that we talk about in the in the discussion. So yeah. I'm going to shut up now. Uh, <laughs> that was wonderful, Kirsty. That's the last thing we want you to do. I just want to say, I think it would have been a much less interesting show with David Tennant. Yeah, um, I think it would be more mainstream, definitely. Simply yeah. because he physically is too much like Hugh Dancy. There they wouldn't have been a very good contrast between them. Um, yeah, David Tennant's quite scrawny, isn't he, really? I not yeah. David guy. in that role at all. No, one of the things I think what, that why Mass works so well is that this, he has this quality about him. And part of it, he's... Um, he comes to this back from the background of kind of dance and gymnastics, so he has this ridiculous amount of um, physical control. But he somehow looks like there's a line in the show about um, I think it's a Bedelia line uh, about you know kind of Hannibal sort of having a very well tailored person suit. Um, right. so there's something yeah, yeah. about Mass Mickelson where he he kind of almost looks like he's sort of carved 
yeah. out of stone, marble. There's, you know, mm. something, you know, they, they, Brian Fuller talked about the kind of sort of seeing the character a little bit like a, a fallen angel, like he is kind of, you know, Lucifer. Um, and Matt is so supremely controlled in his physicality that there's you know, something that is almost kind of uh, inhuman about him. Mm. Yeah. Um that is just sublime in the show, I think. Yeah, I mean, he he, he does play psychopaths quite often. Um, oh yeah. Well, right. well, uh, yeah, but not not in Europe. <laughs> no, I saw him as a psychopath in a. It was it was a it was at a Finnish film festival I was at, and and it was a Danish film, and it. And it also had two lots of subtitles running along the bottom, English and okay. Finnish. And it had an apple in it. Oh, okay, yeah. Adam's, Adam's apples. apples, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I think the, thing, the, the point I'm sorry about is that in his European kind of filmography, he, he, the range of roles is, mm-hmm. is much is much more diverse. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so he, he often plays quite sympathetic, kind of everyman, kind of, you know, flawed characters. Mm-hmm. Um, occasionally, sort of, you know, kind of crazy, slightly comedic, you know, so like um, uh, Men and Chickens and mm-hmm. Adam's Apples. And, and all, also like I see here on uh, IMDb, he played Sniff in Moomin's and the Comet Chase. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know. I mean, okay. He's going to be in, um, he's playing Mayor Prentice in the Chaos Walking film. Yeah, apparently oh. out this week, but I don't know where it's going to be out. No, but yeah, um, well, they're doing all the press for it, aren't they? As if it's a thing that's happening in the world. Yeah, well, I'm not sure it's... we're really excited it'll about it because maybe... we love the books. I read yeah. the books to Emma. I read them yeah. three, and she loved it. And we were like, "How are they going to do the the noise?" Well, and it looked mm. really good. Oh yeah, but, yeah. And keep saying out on they... Friday. <laughs> haven't they compressed all three books into one film, or have I? Heard I don't that think wrong? so. No. Doesn't oh, look like. Why, why would Hollywood do that? <laughs> they yeah, I know. Really I know. Like they, took the Hob- they took the Hobbit and turned it into. Well, yeah, exactly. So yeah, yeah. Like that's of that. It doesn't look that way from the trailer. <laughs> right, I don't. Okay. I, can't, I don't um, think. No. Well, anyway, so anyway, sticking with Hannibal, but, Hannibal. you know, maybe we'll get to talk more about that some other time. Uh, I should have said this earlier, listeners. This is going to be the first of three episodes we're going to do about Hannibal. In this episode, we're only going to be talking about the first series. And the, yeah. the, our episodes on seasons two and three will come in our second series of the podcast, um, as we, we're going to, in a few weeks, be be making a season break um, and, t- and taking a couple of months off. Um, what we're going to do now in this episode is go back to the conversation that Kirsty and I had with two very lauded academics who are also massive Hannibal fans. Fannibals. Um, Fannibals, indeed. Fannibles. What a wonderful <laughs> word. Um, <laughs> Dr. Rebecca Williams and Dr. Laura Hitchcock Morimoto. Listeners, if any of you listening have not actually watched Hannibal, I think clearly there are people on this podcast who want you to go and watch it. But also, <laughs> don't worry too much because... Again, we're, we've strictly stick to the first season, and even within that, the academic discussion kind of stays away from spoilers. I can say that because we've already recorded it. <laughs> the review with the four of us at the end of this episode, however, I don't know if that will be um, spoilerful or not yet. Um, I'll put a warning in the show notes. But you, before we get to that, you can have a couple of hours of listening to uh, Laurie and Rebecca's very erudite thoughts on the first season of Hannibal. And 
before that begins, just have a listen to a trailer of the show to give a feel for the programme. And listeners, just for your information, the sound you're about to hear does not come from an official trailer for Hannibal, but from a fan trailer created by YouTuber TV Junkie. There'll be a link in the show notes. I thought the sound from this trailer gave a better impression of the series and characters than most of the official trailers I could find. The trailer starts off with a reference to the Chesapeake Ripper, the main recurring serial killer in Hannibal, um, who the listener becomes very quickly aware is in fact Hannibal himself, although supporting characters don't realise this until um, a later point. Chesapeake Ripper kills in Sounders of Three. I use the term Sounders because it refers to a small group of pigs. That's how he sees his victims. Not as people, not as uh, prey. Pigs. Mr. Graham. Special Agent Jack Crawford, I head the Behavioral Science Unit. I need you to help me with a psychological profile. I need therapy. What you need is a way out of dark places when Jack sends you there. I imagine what you see and learn touches everything else in your mind. It's pure empathy. You can assume your point of view, or mine, and maybe some other points of view that scare him. You catch these killers by getting into their heads, but you also allow them into your own, because you are unique. If you followed the urges you kept down for so long, you would have become someone other than yourself. You hook him. I'll end him. As an avid fan, I wanted to tell you, I am delighted that you have taken an interest in me. I found a pattern, and now I'm going to reconstruct his thinking. I have begun to question your actions. You are dangerous. I am awake, and this is real. Your personality disorders, all forgeries. I discovered a truth about myself. But doing bad things to bad people makes you feel good. You said you would cover him. You could see he was breaking. I told you not to put him out there! We are as close as we are ever going to get to catching this man. God forbid we become friendly. I don't find you that interesting. You will. So here we are, Kirsty and I now have the absolute pleasure and honour of being joined by Dr. Rebecca Williams and Dr. Laurie Hitchcock Morimoto. Uh, Rebecca is Senior Lecturer in Communication, Cultural Studies and Media Studies at the University of South Wales, and Laurie is a Lecturer in Media Studies at the University of Virginia and a Researcher of Transcultural Fund. Laurie and Rebecca, welcome to Now the Podcast Starts. Thank you. And thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. <laughs> it's our honour. We've been looking forward to this for so long. Um, it's delightful to have two professional fanables on the podcast. <laughs> uh, and and I, <laughs> I can't wait for this discussion. Um, first of all, how are you both? Start with you, Laurie. 
well, other than a quick trip to the emergency room the other day, which turned out to be absolutely nothing, I'm fine. Thank you. <laughs> oh, well, that's wonderful news. That yes. sounded like it was going to be more serious. That it was, was... It was weird. I don't know what it was. We have a roller coaster right away. That's great. How about you, Rebecca? <laughs> yeah, not bad. Tired, but getting on with it, <laughs> I guess. Um, and yeah, it's been quite a good chance to go back and catch up and rewatch a lot, of, a lot of TV. So mm. that's been a that's been one good thing to come out of uh, the last year, I think. <laughs> yes, and um, <laughs> we wouldn't be doing this podcast, I suppose, if it wasn't for lockdown. <laughs> or rather, we were we talked about doing it for for a, we talked about doing it for a long time, and it never happened. And then suddenly we had time on our hands, so we got ourselves organised. As our absent friend Stella observed, it only took the end of the world for us to get <laughs> off our asses. <laughs> Could be said. Yeah. It, it's a motivator. <laughs> um, okay, so we all have different relationships to the TV series Hannibal. Um, and I, I think that is a pretty natural place to begin the discussion. If we all talk about um, how we started our, um, our our love for this show and our knowledge of this show. Um, shall we start with you, Rebecca? Yeah, um, I, I came to the series as a huge Science of the Lambs fan. It was it was really a kind of pre-existing um, love of that film and some of the other not a love of the other films, but having you know read the books and, and really enjoyed those. Um, so I came to it. I watched the first series I think early twenty fourteen because I didn't really know about it. It was um, something that. I, I don't even know what channel it was on in the UK, actually. I'd have to go back and check, I think. It was Sky Living it was on. Okay, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, didn't have that. So it was very much kind of by the box sets. Loved it straight away. And I think I must have finished it in, in about two days and was completely, completely hooked by it. Um, and then it just really st started from there. It was, um, it was the first programme for a long time that I just really felt connected to and just became almost like an instant fan of the program um and then followed it through to the the next sort of two series as well after that when i was able to to get hold of them so uh, you were you were starting to watch it before it finished mm. but almost if you started in 2014 it, it came to an end almost immediately which must have been quite galling yeah um i think I'm trying to remember it's again i didn't i didn't watch it when it was airing obviously the second series so again that was kind of getting the box set so i hadn't seen series two until i think almost season three was starting in the us um and then yeah to, to kind of realize that that was all, all there was going to be was quite disappointing um but without going into the detail about the other two series i think what we do get is pretty as close to perfect as perhaps it could be anyway so I'm I'm kind of okay with that. I think if this is all what we have, I think it's so brilliant that I can live with that. I think. Okay. Well, I think we'll talk more about that in future episodes. How about you, Laurie? How did you come to Hannibal? Um, I'm like Rebecca. I was a big fan of the film The Silence of the Lambs. I hadn't actually read the novels, any of them, um, but I saw the film in a theater when 
it came out because I'm just that old. And that was one of, I, I don't generally, for, for this is a horror podcast and I, I actually am not a big horror aficionado. Um, and that was one of the few films that was sort of scary that I went and saw and actually really got scared by because the girl, the, all the girls were overweight. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, you know, usually they don't want us. And, you know, here's this guy. So, but I was, you know, it was, it was Jonathan Demme's attention, well, and Tak Fujimoto, the cinematographer's attention to how the camera was working in the film that really caught my eye. Um, the way that Clarice was always sort of small and centered, the way that people looked directly, you know, the direct address into the camera, things like that uh, just really grabbed my attention. And, and then that relationship between Hannibal Lecter and Clarice Starling, which is so delicate and fragile. And I just, I really like that. And so, and my husband also really likes the film. And so when we heard that they were going to be doing an NBC TV show called Hannibal, you know, both of us were kind of, you know, that cannot possibly, you know, that there, no good can come of this. And so we sort of watched out of perverse curiosity. Um, and it was, for me, I think the sort of hmm, moment was the red bathroom scene in the first episode. Uh, and I just remember thinking, you know, oh, somebody loves this, you know, which is a line from Silence of the Lambs, you know, mm -hmm. it's when he's looking at the moth and, you know, somebody loved this. And, and we use that in sort of everyday conversation around here. Um, but somebody did, and that was what really grabbed me from the get-go, was that, yeah, somebody loved it more than just thought this would make a great procedural or whatever. Um, and yeah, that was sort of, I was kind of hooked, even though we kind of fell in and out of it, um, and we ended up finishing the third season after it had finished airing. Nonetheless, uh, yeah, it was, we, we stuck with it for three years and we loved it. And yeah, the rest is history. <laughs> wow. Marvelous. Um, sounds familiar in a lot of ways, but um, before I talk about that, Kirsty, how about you then? What's, I know, I've known for a long time how much you love this, but I don't <laughs> really know how it all started. Okay, so um, I... Unlike Rebecca and Laurie, um, I wasn't particularly close to Silence of the Lambs or the other, um, you know, kind of iterations of Harris's novels. Um, I'd not read them. I mean, I'd seen the films, um, with the exception of the ending of Hannibal, because no. Uh, okay. No. Um, the only good bit. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so, um, I, you know, so I kind of had this, you know, passing familiarity with the works and, and with the in the kind of the characters. Um, and when I heard that NBC were doing this procedural before Elector gets discovered and he's going to go out in case of the wall way, I was just, I felt like that was the lamest thing I'd ever heard. It was so, <laughs> it's like, really? Really? And again, I think like Laurie, I kind of watched it out of this kind of, you know, I watched it as it aired on um, Sky Living in the UK. Um, and I and I was you know sort of drawn to it because of the actors as well you know um, Mass Mickelson and and Hugh Dancy in particular and Lawrence Fishburne because he's amazing obviously um, 
And so they're going to cast him first me. And then I watched the first episode and that first sequence as Will kind of deconstructs his first kind of crime mm-hmm. scene and goes into the killer's head was just not at all what I was expecting from an NBC show. It was just, and by the end of that sequence, before I'd even met Lecter, I was like, whatever this is, I'm here for it and I'm in. Um, and so I think for me, you know, I've, I've, I've said quite a lot of times on this podcast about the, the, the moments in terms of, discovering things that have got me to where I'm where I am now professionally and you know in terms of my mm-hmm. kind of fanishness um but Hannibal was the the television show that brought me more to online fandom because there is a you know was a massive still is a massive community online um and it was really the the place um that I was able to I found out for the first time that I could write and analyze and think about these things and there was an audience out there for that type of thing there was a discussion going on around those kind of things um so yeah so it's kind of my love for Hannibal has helped me develop professionally if that's a kind of weird thing to say but it has you know because I just I got so stuck into it in terms of you know thinking and writing and reading and talking and whatever so yeah so that's that that's my experience of it that's fantastic. And frankly, the things that you love should help you develop professionally. If you if you don't have the things that you love in your professional life, well, then you're like most of the people on earth. Um, and, and you know, we're, we're the very lucky ones who get to think about the things we love um, in great detail in our work. So um, mine, uh, my story with this is the least interesting, but I'll just give you a quick overview. I was a fan of The Silence of the Lambs, um, and that led me to watch all the other films uh, based on, on Harris's books. And then I read the book Red Dragon, which I love to pieces. Um, I've never read the other books, though. Um, and I and I am kind of... I have um, a slightly anal delight in comparing different versions of the same thing. So the fact that it had been filmed twice um, was just kind of wonderful. And... and then and I haven't watched it yet, but knowing that Hannibal the series approaches the story of Red Dragon and is going to do its own take on it is something I've been looking forward to for a long time. But I didn't actually start watching the series until basically my best friend uh, just nagged me into doing it because it's his favourite series in the world. Um, so in 2015, he gave me the first the the DVDs of the first two series. I say gave he lent them to me he wanted them back and and he did get them back um but it took a while um and I watched them in a flurry he didn't have see I think possibly series three hadn't been released on dvd at that point so I never watched that and I, I still I've seen the first four or five episodes of it on Netflix, but then as listeners to regular listeners of the show may remember a few weeks ago, I sat down to watch it and found that it just vanished from Netflix. It was so heartbreaking. Um, luckily it's back, it's on Amazon prime now, so I can watch it again. Um, and my delight in it was, uh, well, um, everything that the three of you have said combined with the fact that I, I just thought that, even though I haven't seen the parts of the series which directly adapts Red Dragon, it's a great adaptation of Red Dragon. You know, most of the characters are there. Um, key events and moments are moved around, but they are there. Um, I think that Lawrence Fishburne just is Jack Crawford. 
Um, I, I, I think that um, uh, Hugh Dancy, who's from Stoke-on-Trent, which is where I, I've been working, when just when I, I watched this, it was like, what? <laughs> um, I'd, I'd love to hear him speaking in his own accent. Yeah. I've never done He's, he's but, from, um, a, um, from a place called Stone, actually, I think, which is sort of between here and here in Stoke. And we've, we've driven through many a time. And I've gone, every time we've gone through, I'm like, this is where he dances from. <laughs> wow. Blue pluck time, I think. <laughs> he can go from one accent to the next in like the blink of an eye. Yeah. It's amazing. <laughs> And then there was a video on Twitter the other day of him speaking French at on some, you know, cooking show, like com competition show. And it's like, you know, five minutes of Hugh Dancy just speaking in French. And it was like, <laughs> sorry, I just, wow. he's amazing. No, his yeah, accent, absolutely. speaking as an American, his accent is not bad. Every so often, you'll catch like one little slip that he makes, you know, but you have to be paying attention and it's usually an intonation thing, not like a pronunciation mm. thing. It's like he'll just hit the accent on a, on a different place than we would. But he actually sounds to me like he's using an American regional accent. I couldn't tell you what region, but it does sound very authentic. He's good. Yeah, he's great. He doesn't sound like the, you know, generic American. I mean, um, I have some acting experience you see on actors' CVs, they say they can do general American as one of their accents. What does that even mean? <laughs> um, but no, so I, I don't know where we're supposed to imagine Will Graham is from. But, you know, on the other hand, this is this is in the, the same franchise which had Hannibal Lecter played by Anthony Hopkins. And I don't think anybody knows where he was supposed to come no. from. Um, but, uh, but yeah, just going back to, to what I was saying, um, there were, well... Shortly before I watched um, Hannibal, I, I had worked in a very cold hospital, um, which is what I do the re when, when I'm not doing podcasts or, or bits of acting. Um, I work for the NHS. And, yeah, I worked in this really underfunded hospital project where they couldn't even give you a computer. You had to bring your own laptop. And they also couldn't heat the office, which we were in. And it was just, a, it was like Dickensian, loads of people with kind of fingerless gloves sitting hunched over laptops. And in order to just get myself through the long, cold days, I would listen to the soundtrack of Manhunter, mm -hmm. uh, the Michael Mann film, and uh, which was obviously the first time anybody filmed Will Graham. And in a way, listening to the, what, what he's called on the soundtrack, uh, I think it's called Will's Theme, I just kind of ended up listening to that on a loop, and even though there's there's the stuff that Brian Wright felt, the music composer of the Hannibal TV series, is it's completely unrelated to that. I somehow hear that music with um, with Hugh Dancy's take on Will. He has this this kind of subtle heroism of someone who's fighting the hardest battle, which is the battle against your your own mind. You know, um, we've we've all fought that battle in. Uh, dark moments but this with this character it's writ large and I thought that in the film Manhunter William Peterson uh, did a really good job of showing that when they remade it with Edward Norton not so much mm -hmm. um, but Hugh Dancy's version really does it and the series allows him to explore that thoroughly um, and 
Uh, yeah, and and that's one of the reasons why it is much more than the. Yeah, I agree with you, Kirsty. That the kind of um, one-line synopsis of the series. It's it's Will Graham and, and Hannibal solving crimes before <laughs> before they found out that Hannibal was Hannibal the cannibal. Um, it's so much more than that. It it could have been so naff, and there are so many series which um, are a kind of similar um, pitch. Uh, and our nonsense but you know so um yeah this that's my story and, I, and i've gone on um so let's go a little bit deeper so i think we've all hinted at, at the things which kind of hooked us into the series on our initial encounters but um kind of looking at, at the whole of at least series one as we're discussing today um, what do we think is really special about it? Again, can we start with you, please, Rebecca? Yeah, I think for me, it was that I, I went into it not thinking any, I didn't really have any expectation for it. Um, I hadn't really seen much sort of publicity. I hadn't seen trailers or anything like that. And so it, I was just kind of intrigued to, to kind of to, to see what was what it was about. Um, and a bit, a bit, I think like Laurie, that first, um, episode where you realize that this isn't going to be just an, a, another NBC cop show, basically. Um, and the opening sequence where Will goes into the house and has his mind flash or whatever they, what do they call it? It's sort of swoosh. I, I, I call it the light pendulum. But... <laughs> swish, swish. Yeah. Um, I, I always kind of called. think of it as it, it's it's like one it's like somebody's holding up an ultraviolet light yeah. um, scanner, but it's not blue. It's it's kind of yellow. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so when I watched the first episode, because I knew um, Red Dragon um, and the books and the films so much, I wasn't sure if that was meant to be Red Dragon starting the series. So that was I was a bit it's a bit confusing to me where I was narratively in the story. And then you spend so much time, I think, building up to the reveal of the first time you see Hannibal in, in the episode, you spend, I think like 20 minutes mm. or thereabouts before you even see him. And so you get to, you get to know, I think Jack and Will and they're interesting and it kind of just, it keeps that back from you and it keeps it. And then you get this, this kind of beautiful moment where, you know, they realise that the serial killer that they're looking for is, you know, is eating people. And it's this, this kind of double bluff that it's not him straight away, obviously, but it's just, it kind of gets you. And I just, I found that so, so interesting. And I think, I mean, Hugh Dancy's great, but Mass Mickelson in it is just delightful. He's, he's perfect in that role, I think. And he brings a kind of, co like a comedy to it. He brings a, a likability to it. I, I think Anthony Hopkins in Silence of the Lambs is fantastic, but that's not sustainable as a performance across a television series because it's so arch. It's it's such a performance. And I think Maz Mickelson is so good at the subtleties of, of, of Hannibal and that develops across season one and then later through the series. So I just, I just found his performance so captivating and I really wasn't sure where it was going to go. I really couldn't ever predict, even to the end of, of any of it, where it was going. Um, and I think for me, that was what really kind of made me just 
want to watch all of it and and realizing that yeah it is something different it is something that's had a lot of thought put into how they're going to adapt all those different kind of source materials but still make something that's that's different and that you haven't seen before with those stories and with those characters wonderful how about you laurie I was just, I was listening to Rebecca. Yeah, no, I agree. Totally. Um, I'm saying this, having rewatched it on multiple occasions. So this is more of a retrospective, what makes it special than a, in the moment, what makes it special. Um, but for me, I think probably more than anything, what makes Hannibal stand out is just its televisual audaciousness. And what I mean by that is it, while looking, especially in the first season, and I won't go into the second and third seasons, uh, but especially in the third season, it, it it's almost masquerading as a regular TV show in some ways. That's when its procedural aspects are at its strong, at their strongest. Um, and so it's very easy, especially in the first season to go, oh yeah, this is, you know, sort of in the same vein as, you know, Mad Men or Breaking Bad or, you know, quality television. Um, it's just, you know, it's horror quality television. Um, but at a certain point in season one, and I'll talk about this when you ask about our favorite episodes, um, at a certain point in season one, it starts to become what it will be and it starts to become and uh ah, and that is something that it's when when people say and a lot of people do you know uh i can't believe what they got away with with hannibal on nbc I can't either, but I'm not convinced that when I say it, I'm thinking the same thing as a lot of other people. And maybe I am. But the fact that, I don't know, it is just so narratively audacious. It It is ahead of its time in terms of its storytelling technique and the way it kind of goes meta on the whole notion of writing and what it means to be an author and I know I'm kind of like shooting way over like what the show is about but to me that's what makes the show so special is at the same time as you can say what happened in an episode you can also point to these moments in almost every episode throughout the series that are doing something different and you know, one of the things that was interesting watching it with my husband, who is obsessively, maybe not obsessively, he's, he is, verisimilitude is his thing, realism is his thing, and it's impossible to watch television with him because he will sit there and just nitpick to death the realism of freaking everything, you know, well, that car's not, you know, authentic to that year, and I'm like, I don't care, and Hannibal's the only show that I've actually been able to say no we're not going to do this and let me tell you why and and talked about how it's not working in a realist frame it's not even trying to be realistic you know i live uh about 
a half an hour from Quantico. I live about a half an hour from Wolf Trap, the actual Wolf Trap, Virginia, which does not look like that, by the way. It's a suburb. Um, it's a wealthy suburb. Uh, I live about hour, hour and a half from Baltimore. These are long drives. And the fact that, you know, the two of those people, you know, Hannibal and Will are just like back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. You know, <laughs> Hannibal's like, it's 730 and Will's not here. I think I'll just pop down to Quantico from Baltimore. That's a long drive. <laughs> you know, that alone, I, I thought that was brilliant that they just didn't care about those stupid little details, you know, or or with the, the human totem pole when it's on that that beach in West Virginia which is a landlocked state. Um, and I actually mentioned this at one point and, you know, Brian Fuller like responded somewhere like, well, they did have a, you know, they do have a lake. I'm like, yeah, it's like this little tiny lake. It is not, you know, the wide open beaches of West Virginia because there are no beaches in West Virginia. And I love that about this show that it, it starts from a position of, I don't care. I'm just going to make what I want to make. And it very much becomes, I think the show that, they wanted to make. And I think that's what makes it so special. Wow. Brilliant. Wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Kirsty, how about you? Um, yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah, again, similar to, to, to both Rebecca and Laurie, the audaciousness of it is, uh, yeah, it's, it's clearly a big draw. I think for me as a horror fan, I've always been really drawn to uh, kind of, aesthetic horror horror that has a kind of classical beauty and that tension between oh it's horrible oh and but it's so well presented and look at the color and look at the composition and all of that kind of stuff and so the, the fact that Hannibal in that first episode with um the the oh I've forgotten the name of the body <laughs> the girl who is on the kind of the the um stag's antlers um in the field um, and it's golden hour and everything looks just stunning and it's like okay I'm, I'm not only keeping the fact that she's naked but the the tableau looks amazing and the fact that the show kind of develops that as a thing that it does it does these big murder tableaus and they are you know kind of artfully put together um because of the artist um both intradiegetically and extradiegetically yeah. um was really you know something i'd not <laughs> seen before or at least had not seen recently i think um it pleased me massively and i'm not we're not going to go into detail here because you know spoilers but that brian fuller talked about um how he was influenced by tarzan sin's cell which is the only other kind of film that i felt had that same sense of kind of horror aesthetic so that was you know a really big draw for me and then I think it's not necessarily about the show but it's connected to the show is just the kind of fandom um and the you know um see something in more Laurie's area but that kind of fan producer dynamic um Brian Fuller has always been or was from the outset really kind of positive about the fan reaction and the the you know conversations online around the show have you know, a levity that the show itself is, <laughs> is mostly absent or mostly doesn't, you know, kind of have. Um, but there's just such love and kind of light and colour and humour in the fandom and his interaction with the fandom that that's, you know, that's a real draw as well, I think. I disagree that there isn't that kind of um, light and colour well, in the series. Well, it's, it's interesting to me because I always, it, you know, I'm, I'm a television binger. I love binging television. Um, but Hannibal, I couldn't binge because I think for, there's a sort of tone that develops. I think the music really feeds into that, that I just felt like I could, like, one episode was enough 
to be going wrong with, you know. And and yes, there are kind of moments of lightness, and I think increasingly there are moments of lightness as the the seasons progress. But I think season one in particular feels quite heavy at times. I think for me, anyway. Yeah. Um. Well, I just think well, this is clearly a deliberate decision that they've got two regular characters who are there for nothing but comedy. I mean that um, Zeller and uh, the other guy, what one of whom is actually a comedian, isn't he? Who plays? Yeah. Um, you know, the, they didn't have to make those characters entertaining. They could have just been there to deliver facts. Um, and um, I, I, you know, that kind of runs throughout. Yeah, obviously, it it is quite um, heavy overall. Um, and uh, I think my soundbite to describe Hannibal would be it's basically the tv equivalent of red velvet cake it's it's very very rich i think in in the long run it's probably better for you than loads of cake but um i, I can <laughs> i can understand you feeling overwhelmed when you've had several i mean i've just watched the entire first season in about a week and a bit um and i did flag in the middle but um but actually, I do find it relatively bingeable, possibly because I've seen these episodes before. I, I think yeah. when, when I'm watching episodes for the first time, I want mm. to concentrate on them and take them all in. Um, but in terms of kind of boning up on the show for, for the podcast, I, I just kind of drank think... it all. Go on, Rebecca. Sorry, I just think, coming back to the point about it being kind of the moments of the, the light and that, I think for me, I... I'm a fan of the series. I've been to kind of cons and, and events for it, but I wouldn't say I'm kind of part of the fandom around it, but I'm aware of, you know, you say, I mean, the the humour that you get out of some of the the kind of the memes and the interpretations of some of it that, again, I've, I don't know how many times I've watched it through now, but there are moments now that I laugh at that I find funny mm. because I associate them with the way that, I've seen fans kind of make them funny or make them into a meme or I've heard the, the actors talk about what was happening behind the scenes when they were trying to film it. And so I think there are things that, well, the first time I watched it, I thought I was terrified watching season one. I could, again, like what Laurie's saying, I couldn't believe that this could be on network television because of some of the, you know, the, the, the murder tableaus. Um, and I do think that there is, I think there is an, a streak of black, very, very dark black humour through it, especially mm. later on. But now I do find myself sometimes watching it and finding little moments funny because I know more about them kind of extra textually. Mm. Um, and that's mm. kind of interesting. Things that I was horrified by now, I'm like, oh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I've had Animal. the same problem with like... <laughs> When I've I've made a couple of of fan videos and and one or two fan uh, video essays about Hannibal and especially with the fan videos you're supposed to you know tag for any kind of content that might be disturbing <laughs> and I consistently fail to tag for gore because I forget that certain things are gory because I'm watching them through this in, by the time yeah. I've made these videos they're romantic you know and so this you know not to spoil too much but you know this well if i say this this skinned man eviscerated whatever you know that's a that's a, a love letter yeah. you know and and so i forget that they're you know gory yeah. <laughs> and i mm. need to let people know 
because yeah. I'm just like, oh, that's so, sweet. <laughs> you know, that's so cute. Oh, he gave him a love letter. Yeah. Yeah. Might as well have just can't, you know, carved Hannibal love. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's that pathetic. But. Yeah. Wow. Um, I look forward to watching those, Laurie. Yeah. <laughs> I hope they're available. Easily. They are actually. <laughs> we should we should probably put them in the in the show notes. <laughs> we certainly shall. We certainly shall. Oh, that's brilliant. Um, it, it it does strike me that there is um an an invisible or subtle thread of of humour running through the whole thing that you ha that is kind of there to be discovered. I mean, you could watch the entire series, and and but not read anything about it and have no idea that every episode has a, a food-based title or, or, or mm. you know, a, a punny, and I think they're all French, aren't they? Um, yeah, season one's French. Season one. Oh, is season French. one, yeah. just season one. Okay, so. Yeah. Season two is Japanese and season three is Italian. Wow, okay, so that much thought has gone into it as well. See, that, yeah, that's fantastic. And yeah, being aware of those kind of things does, does lighten it a good way. Um, just to pick up on the point one of you made about how quickly you were enjoying the show when you watched the first episode. I think the first episode is such an amazing... I mean, I'm I'm attracted to, to beginnings, and it sets it up so strongly, and I think that uh, it really says something that as much as this show is called Hannibal and the character of Hannibal and Matt Mickelson is amazing, when I rewatched the first episode this time... I'd forgot by by about twenty minutes in. I'd forgotten he was going to come into it. I was just really enjoying the the kind of Will Graham Jack Crawford um, investigation show. I, I just thought that worked so well. And also, I think they they even introduced characters like Doctor Bloom before Hannibal. You know, and and just everything works so well. And he's not even there. Um, and then he kind of. S kind of insinuates his way slowly into the series i think it's just wonderfully done and it's it's done with a great deal of restraint that for the first half of season one he's not hugely involved in a lot of ways it's 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 more kind of um the things he's doing off screen which are significant but his actual mm. presence and his on-screen actions are kind of really um uh dealt out with restraint um i in terms of what makes the show special i do love absolutely every aspect of it um i love the the photography i love the 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 kind of atonal uh music which is um the brilliant way the soundtrack dances between the, the kind of wall of sound um mm -hmm. Uh, nightmare of Brian Wright's little score, but also the um, the very appropriate to Hannibal um, splashes of uh, classical music and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, and every single character. I love the fact that um, it's it stands as a great, as, as I've already said, as a great adaptation of Red Dragon, I think, or, or the prelude to, to one. Um, but it's also a wonderfully meta comment on the silence of the lambs uh, in terms of its position in culture, uh, which is really quite great, considering that they didn't have the rights to the silence of the lambs. It's the only one of Thomas Harris's books they didn't have the rights to. 
so they've, they've got kind of they're constantly winking at things from the size of the lambs without being able to directly show them so mm. you've got gillian anderson um who you know her who, whose career basically is is owed to the science of lambs i don't think without without that film we wouldn't have the x-files and therefore we wouldn't have Gillian anderson i think then you've got in another episode lance henriksen turns up um who was basically playing will graham in the series millennium wasn't he which i only ever saw one episode of but it's basically the same idea mm. Then you've got the character of Miriam Last seen only in flashback, who is basically Clarice. Um, and that, and, and uh, little bits like, um, I think in a scene with Dr. Chilton, Hannibal says something along the lines of, you, um, it's good to have an old friend for dinner, things like that, which um, it's like so close. I, I almost thought, surely they were getting lawyers ready but, <laughs> at this point. But... Um, uh, I actually have an essay about exactly all of this. If you're ever interested, all right, okay, <laughs> certainly. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's in a it's in a book that's actually worth buying because it's affordable. Um, <laughs> right. Called becoming, uh, becoming. It's up here on my wall. Genre queerness and transformation in NBC's Hannibal. Um, I would really recommend the whole book, but. The essay I wrote actually has ever, everything to do with what you're talking about, and I love it too. It's so great. Wow, fantastic! Um, so uh, um, that's that's a great recommendation. I think that brings us to the subject of our favorite episodes. Um, what do we think are our favorite episodes of of season one? Um, Rebecca, should we start with you again? Um, You've got the look on your face of just the pain of like, don't, ask me. don't make me choose between my children. <laughs> um, I probably will also forget what some of them are called because French is not really my, uh, it's not my language. I've got them written um, down in front of me, so I'm sure I can identify. Brilliant. <laughs> I really like um, Coquille, the one with the angels. I do too, yeah. I really like the, I think the... The scene of of the angels over the the you know the bed is truly horrible, but beautiful. It's, it's what you're talking about, Kirsty. That kind of art mm. horror kind of thing that comes together. And I think for me, I really like the way that in that episode you start to see more of a link between the case, the cases of the week, and what is going on with the characters. So you see. Jack's realization that his wife has cancer. You see Will starting to really realize that he's mentally, you know, in a bad way. And I think for me, a lot of a lot of those things really start to come together in that episode and get stronger and stronger throughout the series. And um, and I just I, I like I like the idea of the, the the case. It works. Some of the earlier episodes for me, I find. I, I watch them because I like the character, but the, I find some of the case of the week stuff a bit of a slog, mm. if I'm honest. Um, and I think once they start to meld those things together, I think for me, that's when the series gets really starts ramping up to being, you know, really fantastic. Um, and everyone in that episode has something to do. Lawrence Fishburne's amazing in it. I say Hugh Dancy's fantastic in it. Um, Hannibal's in it, but, He's he, again. He's kind of in the background of it a little bit, um, and I think for me that's that's the one that I always when I'm rewatching it, when I know that that episode is coming up, I'm always really pleased that that I'm going to get to see it again. 
Um, so for me, I think that's that's a good example of everything. I think that the series does really well. Wonderful. How about you, Laurie? I had to review it a little bit. I didn't rewatch the entire thing, but I did go back just to make sure that the one that I thought was the one that I like best was in fact the one that I like best. And it is. And that would be episode eight, which is called Fromage. Uh-huh. Um, and that's the episode in which uh, we have a psychopathic uh, music store owner who is making strings out of human gut, not cat gut played by the absolutely delectable Damore Barnes. And I mean, he was so pretty in this. And I know that this is probably not what your podcast is about, but <laughs> I just have to say that there's not one person who looks bad in that episode. Everybody <laughs> looks fabulous. Um, it's a very, it's a very, Hannibal in general is a very aesthetically pleasing show on many levels, but you know, good looking people are one of them. But the thing I, I love I love about this episode about this episode is that I think this is where again you know and I and I kind of I said this before but this is where the show that it's going to become really starts to show um, and it does it in some really interesting ways but one of them is just through the the theme of friendship you know this is the episode where where uh where uh, not Tobias but the other Franklin uh, Franklin, Franklin yeah, thank no, no, you no. who I love yeah. and he's also beautiful in this by the way <laughs> um <laughs> sorry but he, he was he looked great uh, he's he played his Hannibal cosplay um oh oh god I never noticed you know um that's uh, me and clothes but I did notice oh the costumes in this one I just thought that are amazing that actor had the most um sound this is my name sounds like myself. Name. He's called Dan Fogler. Yeah. You know, yeah. you just look at him and think, yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's him. He <laughs> does. Um, no, this is, yeah, he's he's kind of, well, he's kind of sort of half in Hannibal cosplay and half in Tobias cosplay uh, at this point because he's really sort of, you know, fixating on both of them. But, you know, he starts off about, you know, this is this is a continuation of I just want to be your friend uh, with Hannibal. And Tobias comes to dinner and says, you know, I could use a friend. And Hannibal says, yeah, I totally get what you're saying. And I totally don't want to be your friend. Um, but then he goes to Bedelia and says, you know, I kind of want a friend. And I think I know who I want to be my friend. And she's like, tell me, because I don't already know. Um, and she names him and he's like, yeah, you know, and she's like, you're completely insane. Um, <laughs> but I mean, just the vulnerability, this is a very Hannibal centric episode uh, in contrast with some of the earlier ones in particular. And this is the last time we see him being this emotionally vulnerable for a long time because he kind of seems to make a conscious choice by the next episode that no, you know, we are not going to do this business uh, because he's so affected when he thinks that Will is dead. And there's, I mean, this is, this is Matt's, right? His micro expressions are the thing of, of, you know, the stuff of legend. Um, <laughs> but, you know, if you watch that last scene between Hannibal and Will a hundred thousand times, which I have, then, you know, you, you can just soak into the breath that he exhales when he sees Will walk into the room alive. And it is palpable. You can see his chest. I mean, it is beautiful. 
and he's having this real emotional moment that he clearly has no idea what to do with. And I love that that's basically sort of what precipitates the rest of the first season that, you know, this kind of, I am going to back away quickly from this business and I'm going to be in control. And, you know, I think I frame him because it'll be good for him. You know, um, I love that about this episode, but the other thing I really love about it is that stylistically as well, it's also gotten very confident by this point. And so it has those close-up cutaways of, you know, the, the gut that's being turned into the string sort of wafting in the water. Um, it's got, uh, this, is, this is one of the most visually dark episodes of the first mm -hmm. season. Like they're talking basically in, you know, a closet with like, you know, a sliver of light dark. Um, that, that really high contrast chiaroscuro lighting where you can just barely make out anybody. And how that reflects what's happening with Hannibal in particular, you know, that he is becoming more and more opaque and hard to see, you know, in terms of his motivations and stuff. I just love that, that kind of wedding of aesthetic and meaning that seems to really have reached a point of confidence by that episode. Great. Um, before we come to your favorite episode, Kirsty, I just, I've just had a thought which I just want to air. Something that I think works amazingly well about the series, but I don't understand why, um, and I, I'd like your thoughts on it, um, is uh, Laurie referred to how, how beautiful everyone is. And that's not just true of that episode, that's pretty much the whole show, and not just the people, but the way it's shot and, and absolutely everything. And usually, I mean, you do get... Um, Obviously, TV and film are visual mediums, and, and you get um, style-heavy productions um, all the time. Usually, I find that that has the effect of uh, distancing uh, me from emotional involvement with what's going on. That that doesn't happen in Hannibal. Um, the, the characters stay alive, even though you're going, wow, isn't that beautifully composed uh, or and you're going wow look at that decor or those costumes or i wish hannibal had chosen better curtains <laughs> that's that's the the only the only kind of negative point i do i, I dare you i remember <laughs> that came up in a review and now i can't not see them <laughs> so every, every time there is a, a scene in in hannibal's office i'm just staring at the curtains um <laughs> but now the point is, yeah, I, I just the, the 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 series is like the ultimate kind of unreal um, aesthetic piece, and it's full of absurdities, as as Laurie observed in terms of the the logical leaps and the geographical things and that. And how did the guy with the the um, the wings hang himself to the top of that that farmhouse? how just how um uh, doesn't matter but what well, yeah i mean that that's that's arguable but i just wondered what people thought about why why do we still care even though it's so style heavy and and you know sorry uh, sorry <laughs> no i just no go on Louis. i never 
get I never get to talk about this show. I'm so excited no, to be able to talk about it. Um, no, because all right. So even even in the first episode, but especially from about the time that uh, Abigail wakes up and they're all talking, the three of them are talking in that kind of greenhouse thing. If you look, the they they make really extensive use of short focal length. I mean, they get the camera right in their face. It's focused on like a nose and maybe a cheekbone and everything else is blurred. I mean, they are right in there and the camera itself is so intimate and close. And I think that's one of the sort of visual things that encourages that kind of identification with all of them um, is just, you know, how, how, close the camera gets how much it kind of I don't know I don't want to say caresses them because it really doesn't but just that short focal length that shows up again and again and again is so important I think and it's something that if you're looking at some of these other shows again you know Breaking Bad, Mad Men those are sort of my two go-tos which probably isn't fair a lot of those kinds of shows are about alienation and about, you know, social or, uh, well, social alienation, societal alienation, which would probably be social. Um, and Hannibal is not at all about alienation. It's about finding people like you, finding somebody who understands you. It's about connection rather than alienation. And I think that because it's coming at it from that perspective, it, makes it much easier even to identify with or sympathize with, even though he is a horrible, horrible, horrible man, Hannibal Lecter, because he is a bad, bad, bad man. And at certain points, you're just like watching, like you bad man, you know, you are not a good man. Um, and yet when he's hurt, when he's vulnerable, and I don't want to go to my sort of go-to example because that's at the end of season two, but it is a very good go-to example and I will share it someday. Um, but at no point, when, when he's hurt, he's usually hurt for very relatable reasons, which isn't necessarily the case when other people get hurt. And, <laughs> and you know, other people like get stabbed, they get killed, you know, they get turned into violins or violas, whatever, you know, like weird shit happens to them and you watch and you go, that is really weird. And that has never happened to me. But when Hannibal, is hurt, it's usually emotional. And in one sense or another, we've been there before. And I think that makes him especially sympathetic. Sorry, mm -hmm. I just, a great I, answer. I love it so much. Uh, Kirsty, you want to talk about expressionism? Yeah, no, I, I think mm. it, it, you know, that, that's kind of part of that, you know, expressionism tends to be, particularly general expressionism, obviously, which I, you know, kind of think that this has, as a show has a lot of, roots in um that you know the kind of point of that is about conveying and creating emotion um and i think with hannibal just you know to to, to you know kind of piggyback on what laurie was saying is that it's that it's part of the mechanisms of how we are encouraged to like this horrendous character um because the so the show is it it feels uh, quite a lot of time not just the murder tablets but the whole thing feels like a kind of product of you know it's a, a television show made by Hannibal it has that precision it has that aesthetic mm. and so it's really 
becomes really easy to kind of, you know, kind of align with him because we're being shown a world that is very much a reflection of how he wants the world to be. Um, and yeah, and I think that, that that does help or kind of engenders a kind of an emotional connection with him. Um, and, you know, and, and Will's, you know, Will's kind of emotional journey is also in that kind of similar mode. It's much more kind of fairy tale like. Um, but, you know, he's a precious little pumpkin, isn't he? <laughs> but, oh. so, yeah, so. He's a sad puppy. <laughs> Bless Will Graham. Okay, so Kirsty, what was your? Oh, oh can I also sorry, wait? Laura. I'm sorry. No, no, I go just, for it. There's just one other thing, and this actually, if it get that, it gets back to the issue of costuming and especially makeup and hair, um, which you know every show is attentive to. This is not the only show that has ever done this before, but one of the things that it's able to do, I think, because the titular character uh, is also. Um, Sorry, an email just popped in. Because, you know, Hannibal is sort of ostensibly a kind of pseudo-protagonist, but not exactly, um, that it can play with, you know, because we also know he's a horrible man. If you watch sort of in each episode, the evolution or, or changes in Mads Mikkelsen's hair, those are, I mean, those are character shaping moments. When it's slicked back like this, he is a bad man. But then you have these episodes where he's like, it's soft, it's freshly washed, it just dripped, you know, just into his face, kind of, you know, it's got this little fringe, and you're like, you are the prettiest psychiatrist cannibal killer I have ever seen ever. And I just want to pat your head for a while. And and one of the things I like about um again, fromage is that at the end, you know, he's He's banged up and bruised because, yeah, he got in a fight and then, yeah, he killed somebody. Um, and it was the first time. Um, but, you know, his hair is hanging in his face and he has this kind of hangdog look. And it's completely genuine and at the same time completely disingenuous. And then if you fast forward to, you know, close to the end of the last episode of season one, which I cannot pronounce, um, when he's in when he's in Jacob Hobbs's kitchen with Will and they're having their sort of final confrontation his skin looks oily mm. his hair is slicked back his eyes he does I mean there's this thing with his eyes where they just look like almost like sockets he looks so unappealing it's hard to believe it's the same man but he is sort of quintessential Hannibal in this moment you know this is who he is and yet so is that other soft, sweet pat him on the back and give him a lollipop guy that we saw at the end of Fromage. And, and those subtleties in makeup and costume, especially with Hannibal, I think also go a long way towards um, sort of cultivating our sympathies. When he looks sympathetic, you know, it's hard to say no. And when he shows up for the first time in Jack Crawford's office, you know, he's got this very kind of earth tones ensemble and he looks so pleasant and nice and he's wearing a sweater vest for heaven's sake. You know, I mean, he looks lovely and you think what a lovely man, you know, if I didn't know who you were, I would think you were charming. Um, and I think that goes a long way as well to both creating the character and its complexity, but also especially in kind of cultivating our own reluctant sympathies with him. 
sorry, I can talk about it. <laughs> no, it's wonderful. So. <laughs> it's fantastic. Thank you. Um, your favourite episode then? Well, okay. Well, I couldn't really choose one. Um, so I'm going to talk very, very quickly about uh, three. Uh, no. Uh, so I already talked about the the, the opening. The um, aperitif is just amazing, I think, as a, as a good kind of starting episode. Um, uh, and then... Um, I agree with Laurie. The amount of choice is also kind of from large for all the reasons you've talked about. But I think particularly it's the first time, I think, um, where like, you know, we kind of we know what Hannibal is and we've not but we've not seen him be physically aggressive. And it's that kind of there's a, a line, I think, in not his first scene, second scene in in Aperitif where he where he's talking to Franklin. He says something like, you know, you know, don't worry, Franklin, when the line you'll know or something like you'll know when the line is in the room or when the line is in the room, you'll know it, something like that. Um, and there's just that kind of moment of the the point where he turns from kind of being sort of civil and trying to manage the situation into, okay, now I am you know, I am who I am, <laughs> you can all watch out. Um, so, you know, I think that was a really exhilarating sequence in the first time to sort of see how physically threatening he could be on, on screen. Um, and again, a lot of kind of props to, to Mass for, for, you know, or the cast, or at least Brian Fuller for casting him as a, you know, kind of former ballet dancer, gymnast, somebody with an incredible um, kind of physical or, you know, physical control. Um, we start to get to see more of it in that, in that um, episode. Um, and then increasingly more as the series progresses. Um, for me, though, I think um, episode three, Potage, is also a really important episode. The it's the one where the, where Abigail wakes up and we start to see the development of that, you know, kind of the, that uh, triad kind of relationship and how Hannibal um, reveals more of himself to uh, to Abigail as a way of kind of, um, you know, ingratiating himself or starting to use her as leverage. Um and we get, to, I think it's the first time we get to see, I think, the Ravenstag. Um, I think I might be wrong. Um, Which, you know, sure. is a kind of an important symbol. it's in the first episode. Oh, yeah, no, it, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah, we get, we get to see more of it, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but certainly, I always feel like um, the second episode, um, you know, mushroom person, uh, mushroom people, like we don't, like it doesn't, it sort of, it feels like those two episodes, episodes one and three ought to sort of run together a bit more clearly because it feels like a more complete arc. But I, I love that kind of question of, of Abigail and to what extent she's complicit in any of this stuff. Um, and these kind of moments where you think, well, she must, you know, does she know? Does she remember? Does she recognise Hannibal's voice um, from the phone call? Those kind of questions, I think, are, are really great. And also, it, again, it looks great. The colour palette, you know, like those oranges and yellows is all very beautiful. So there you go. Those are my, <laughs> my three favourites. Yeah, uh, brilliant. I'll, I'll just say that I, I've loved hearing all three of you and agreeing with all three of you one by one. <laughs> Um, I, I think it's it's much easier to pick a least favorite episode than a favorite episode, um, because I basically thought they were all great apart from one, um, which I'm not. <laughs> what one? Um, <laughs> well, I'm gonna have to say it now, aren't I? Yeah, uh, yeah. The, it's Trow Normand, I think the one with yeah. the um, the one with the totem pole. Yeah. Um, it's fine. Oh, like one, yeah. It's fine. It's just that uh, the the totem pole is such an amazing horrific like image that. <laughs> that i think that that the, and that comes right at the beginning of the episode that the rest of the episode it doesn't have enough to to 
stand up to that. I mean, the 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 solution to the mystery in that episode is basically they f they look the killer up in the phone book and go round to his house, <laughs> and he's sitting there waiting for them and doesn't even stand up. And it's Lance Henriksen. Um, so I I just found. <laughs> That episode is just marked by uh, expectations not being met for me. But um... I think that's one that feels like the most, it's the most sort of killer of the week procedural, I think, mm -hmm. for me. It's, it is very. Uh... Yeah. Okay. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Well, why, why, why'd you like it, Rebecca? Yeah. I really love that episode. It's one of my favorites. <laughs> mm. <laughs> why do I like it? Um, I like the absurdity that we're supposed to believe that 95-year-old Lance Henriks these courses are strung them together and like it's, <laughs> it's compacted what you're saying, Laurie. It's just it's improbable. And I love that. And I quite like <laughs> yeah, the beach that doesn't exist. I, I kind of like the fact that it's by this point I think they're like <laughs> the procedural part of this isn't really mm. relevant <laughs> so the phone book why not and it's not, yeah. there's no you know what I mean like it's not about how they solve the crime it just and there is a sort of theme in it that it's about family that it's about he Lance Henriksen's character thinks that he's killed someone because his wife got pregnant with his baby but it's actually his and he's ruined his own family and it sort of ties in with where we're going i think with will and abigail and hannibal and their kind of family push and pull and we're starting to find out i think at this point how much she knew about what her father was doing so i, I i've always thought it's it, it does well, no, something Rebecca, more than conspiracy defense Some I, mean, of you I, guys I, think. but i have I the quite kind like of temperament and the question was, what's your favourite episode? I was going to say my least favourite episode. It's just, it's just easier. Um, but it's a, it, and it, it only stands out really because um, because I loved all, all the rest so much, and especially the one you've mentioned. Laurie, what were you going to say? I was just going to say, you know, there's getting back to what Kirsty said about German Expressionism. Um, that's one of the episodes that has like a really quintessentially expressionist uh, moment in Hannibal's office. After we have Hannibal going to his office door and opening it, and we get the Caravaggio, Will Graham, you know, very, I mean, it is, it's a painting. He turns around, he's beautiful, he comes in, he's like, oh no, that's a different episode. But anyway, he does <laughs> at one point do that. This one, he, he turns around and he goes, where the hell am I, right? Um, he goes into Hannibal's office and he is talking about how oh, it's he, beautiful. He basically, he was standing on a you know beach in West Virginia ten minutes ago, and now he's in Hannibal's office and he don't know what doesn't know what's happening. But they use a track on that that is also, I think, on like kind of a, a pivoty sort of thing. So if you watch the scene, you can kind of map what the camera is doing, but it's doing something very complex in the service of communicating Will's disorientation, which is an extremely expressionist thing to do. And I'm thinking especially, I can't remember the name of the film, but it's sort of latter expressionism. Mm -hmm. I don't know, Murnau. Yeah, I was going to say Murnau. Like, <laughs> yeah, it the, is The last laugh. Yes, yeah, the last laugh. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. It's exactly the last laugh. Yeah. And it's exactly borrowing from that yeah. kind of, you know, whirling around camera, but it's doing it really complexly. Um, it's a nice shot. And I love it for 
being unnecessarily complicated you know they could have not done that shot but they're like you know we're gonna do the shot because this is the show we're making and and again you know that's yeah yeah yes (laughs) just yes just yes (laughs) fair enough that is the answer to any question about Hannibal um so uh, I think we might have already touched on the some of these, but um, what do we think are the most horrific moments in the first season? Um, Rebecca, should we start with you again? Oh, I, I've got the, the cello guy, the cello. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's I. I when I first watched the series, I was watching it, so I'd watch it upstairs, and my husband would be downstairs. And he, before he started watching it with me, because I was like, you must watch this. It's so great. And he would say all he could ever hear was every sort of episode once or twice. Just me going, oh, no, you can't do what? No. So he got intrigued. He's like, what the hell is this? And I think the, the cello down the throat was probably the, the biggest. And you can't actually do that. And I think it's just so the image is so horrifying. Um and again, it's, it's so much of what you see in Hannibal don't really see. You you see the kind of the after effects of a lot of it when you see the discovery of the bodies. You know, it's it's kind of implicit. And I think I think you're right. That is a dark episode aesthetically, but I think it really is one of the episodes where you really get a sense of what's the process of of how this is happening to people. Um, and I think for me, yeah, that's yeah. I think for series one, it's definitely that one. Yeah. Um, I, I wouldn't disagree so much with that one. What do you think, Laurie? Um, I'm of two minds. The in in episode two, the, the sort of half dead, half alive mushroom mm. guy is a bit much. Um, so just in terms of gore, that one I have a problem with. Um, and I do have a friend, actually, who I, I tried so hard to get her to watch this, um, as I do with everyone. And I usually win. But she was like, I saw that and I cannot, you know, I'm sorry, but I don't know when something else like that is going to be out there and I'm just not going to find out. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, but, you know, you, you, you mentioned earlier that you had like a sort of one line summary of the of the show and I think mine would be that you know for me it's very kind of David Cronenberg meets Douglas Sirk meets you know soap opera meets grand how do you say that grand grand guignol. Guignol? Guignol? yeah yeah, guignol? yeah. I mean, possibly that's, I have no idea my pronunciation is terrible but, you know that's that's <laughs> so is mine um I can't, I can't I still can't say that last episode of season one um the the ear that will oh yeah throws up oh yeah um, I really actually that's probably my worst because I cannot take I mean it's just nasty and there's like mucus and shit and I just oh sorry there's like mucus no and no stuff. no that's and fine it's fine don't worry we, we don't we we long ago stop leaping and swearing okay um, but that's the way the, the camera's the, down the throat isn't it and we could have go yeah, oh. yeah but not until later I don't okay. think I think they don't show it until later but like what he did but we just get the barfed up mm-hmm. ear and it's like are you kidding me man um, <laughs> but that seems that's sort of like to me sort of the beginning of the of the David Cronenberg-esque you know body horror not that all of it isn't body horror but 
it's an, it's an ear down his throat. That's gross. So <laughs> I don't know. One of those, but maybe the ear a little more, which seems odd considering there are so many mm. murder tableaux. <laughs> I think that's, it's not pretty. No. <laughs> the murder tableau can be, you know, sort of aesthetic in their way, but the ear is nasty. <laughs> and I think that's my problem with it. Yeah, there's there's very little direct nastiness. Um, I mean, even the most horrific things, they if they can't find a way to make it somehow sort of beautiful, then they they discreetly cut away from it. I'm thinking particularly of the bit where the uh, doc, the, the neurologist, as head has been kind of broken yeah. backwards. Oh, yeah. You can hardly see yeah, that. The... You can just see enough of it to go. <laughs> 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 oh. Oh. Oh, yes, awful. absolutely. <laughs> uh, Kirsty, how about you then? Yeah, so my 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 kind of moment is it. Well, the same moment is actually from that episode, which is number ten, um, Buffet Trois, I think. Yes. Um. So that that and it's not so much that, although that is horrific, and the whole kind of you know, um, uh, what's her name, Georgian. Yeah. The, the fact that she can't see faces that's mm. pretty yeah and Hannibal in his PVC thing it's, it's like it's a whole ha thing Hannibal in his murder suit which we see <laughs> twice I think in the season and yeah, it's so, yeah, so yeah. great that he has that <laughs> but but I'm sorry we're on for horror so that I mean that is like gore is pretty nasty um but I just thought that that whole opening sequence is the first I'll say the first time but it, it felt again more kind of procedural and more kind of clearly horror that following um the kind of victim into her house and that kind of sense of the lurking mm -hmm. and then she's up in the attic and although the you know footprints apparently on the dripping in and it's all you know it's all very very horror and it does but I, I remember watching it and my like, god oh, this is horrible or creepy and it's just that you know that long drawn out thing that I really you know kind of kind of affecting I think the just the final moments of it where she gets whipped under the bed and there's the splay of blood <laughs> felt a bit too kind of genre but then we have the moment later where you know kind of Will goes from being in one place kind of nice and calm and then the next moment he's in he is murdering her and he has the knife and it's it's you know that was pretty grim um and kind of shocking um but actually, that I think that for me, um, I found a quotation. I can't remember where I found this, but I did find it at the time. Sadie Doyle. Um, so we'll just read you the quotation. So the biggest scare of the first season wasn't a gory corpse display, though we had lots of those. The revelation that Will had encephalitis and Hannibal was preventing him from getting treatment. The primal fear here isn't axe murder. Axe murder, it's abandonment. All the blood in the world can't scare more profoundly than the idea that the people care, who, who care about us may be faking it. Which that, you know, for me, kind of sums up, sums up what the real horror of season one for me is, is. And it's not, I don't, you know, I think like Laurie, my understanding of kind of Hannibal's arc has changed slightly. So it's not that I think that he doesn't care, it's just that he doesn't care in kind of regular ways that would have been like, right, right you're ill, let's go to a doctor and then not kill the doctor and let you get help. Um, Hannibal to gender is different, but it's, it's you know, it's in like, like I get so, I think the more I watch season one, the more I get angry with Jack. Jack just, you know, he he knows in the like in season episode one, um Hannibal, you know, says about, you know, that Jack thinks you're like a fragile little teacup. Mm. Um and that if that's how Jack thinks of him, he's constantly kind of pushing him into situations that he clearly can't handle, mm. but because he's getting results, that's okay. 
Yeah, and, and that, Jack, you know. Jack is the supposedly normal person. Yeah, and... exactly. <laughs> kind of rational, but he wants results. Mm. Um, and I've, again, that, that it's not that Hannibal's kind of treatment of Will isn't horrific, because it is, obviously, rationally. But the fact that we have this this character who is more rational, more normal, kind of abiding by society's codes, who is, you know, willfully kind of, you know, managing Will or trying to manage Will, um, when he is repeatedly told that he shouldn't, it's pretty, you know, negligent, and that's quite scary, I think. Good point, very much so. Um, whew, so, uh, again, I really struggled to to uh, pick one massively horrific moment. I, I, there are so many. Um, I think I might just have to run through a few. Um one that I didn't even think of before that occurred to me while you were speaking is uh, the um, the death in the Iron Lung um, caused oh, yeah. by coming, you know, because that's one of the rare occasions where we see a death in the moment. In most of the series, it's either we see the aftermath or, and when we do see it, it's kind of through Will's perception where he is the killer. He's imagining himself as the killer. Although those sequences are actually usually pretty horrendous as well. And I think the um, the kind of recurrent technique that you don't see the, an actual murder until later when you see Bill piecing it together and then reenacting it in his mind. In a way, that's that's actually more possibly even more disturbing than if you'd seen the killer do it because you like Will. Um, and... Uh, yeah, that, that's extremely troubling that they keep doing that. But at the same time, there is real terror in that real-time moment of that death in, in the, um, the, the hospital. And another real-time death that I found really, um, uh, you know, really effective in a conventional way is when Dr. Gideon kills the nurse. Which is... Um, it's almost as if the... It's like, um, yes, we know this isn't like other cop shows and it's not really doing the usual um, catch of the killer thing. It's not really doing the fight scene thing. But every now and then it's like it feels the need to go. But it's not that we're avoiding doing it because we don't know how to do it, you know. And then there's like a fight scene like the one uh, bias we discussed earlier, which is just like amazing. And you go, whoa, OK, I'm convinced. Um and 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 you're you're not going to see the murders, but it's like, but then suddenly you have a sequence like like the nurse being killed, which is just um, horrendous. And I think the fact that she she's um, her eyes are gouged, um, and then she's kind of left flailing in, in the darkness in her own personal darkness. That's, that's really chilling. Um, yeah, I, I think the uh, the the angels with the skinned backs for wings um, is, is a stunningly horrific image. Um, and especially when you think, I think they actually say they were alive for at least some of you know for for a few minutes uh, with with their hands bound together and their and their backs skinned and all that. Uh, yeah, so um, what, why pick one? There's so many to choose from. It's... <laughs> Smorgasbord right? of choice. <laughs> <laughs> can, I mention, or can I jump off something that Chrissy said a minute ago sure. real quick about um, that, that betrayal 
being horrific, which I agree. I mean, that's you were mentioning, Dan, um, earlier about how, you know, the first episode and and indeed you know a lot of the first few episodes are very will centric for you know oddly for a show called Hannibal um and not to get too far down the path of my own personal prejudices but it opens in very similar ways to the first episode of Sherlock and one of the things having endured that (laughs) all the way through um no I loved it I did until I didn't. Um, I know exactly what you mean, Laurie. They, they diverge at a certain point, and I think the point that they div- diverge at is is where Kirsty is talking about where <laughs> it's these moments of just betrayal, where where Sherlock went big to try and you know stun the audience or you know amaze the audience or scare the audience. You know, this is a big emotional moment. And they played it big. With Hannibal, they go in exactly the opposite direction. It's like, you know what? We're going to take this slow and we're going to take it quiet. And ultimately, when we get to even greater points of betrayal of anger and stuff, I mean, it really is, you know, those micro expressions that sell it. And where, when I was watching, especially the last episode of season four of Sherlock, and, you know, B2-1B blows up and all kinds of improbable things happen that are just, you know, kind of over the top and beg the question of how realistic is this? You know, Hannibal has the benefit of having said from the beginning, not at all, don't worry about it. So it can do kind of what it wants. But when I contrast this upcoming moment with that, I think it, it's sort of, well, it's field kabuki. Um, I used it. Uh, <laughs> but it is. It, it throws into relief what it is that Hannibal is doing that is, I would argue, so much more elevated than a lot of scripted quality TV in that it just, it goes quiet, you know, like, bring it in. This is all about, you know, it hurts to be betrayed. Um, and that is brilliant mm-hmm. and terrifying. Yeah, um, I, I can't believe we've not mentioned Sherlock until now. Um, Kirsty and I have talked about Sherlock um, on record before. I'm, I, I don't go into detail, but but in terms of, <laughs> I know, interestingly, as has Laurie, oh, right. part of that same project. Oh, okay. Just in different places. <laughs> oh, really? Right. Okay, wonderful. Um, uh, yeah, for the listeners, this was a, f- a few years back. Um, and you know Sherlock is out of the remit of of this podcast, I suppose. So um, I don't know when we'll get the chance to have that conversation again. But it did strike me on rewatching Hannibal, and I don't know whether I, how I didn't notice this the first time. But I think Sherlock is the most clear antecedent to, to Hannibal uh, in terms of because Hannibal is basically doing the same thing to the Thomas Harris books that Sherlock was doing to Conan Doyle, and I never realised that the first time round. It, it's basically going, you know this, so we're going to give it to you in a different way. Um, and, uh, I, I mean, uh, Sherlock, uh, for me, stopped working qu- quite quickly, but what they set up was perfect. Uh, with Hannibal, um, they they set it up and, and sustain it. Um, 
as far as I've seen so far, anyway. Um, and I, I they to use an obvious phrase, they lean into it. You know, they're <laughs> like, "Yeah, that's what we're doing. And we're yeah. going to do it more. You know, and we're going to do it bigger." Um, where Sherlock was trying to please itself, I think more than anything. Mm. But I that that conversation will go on forever. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's already enough hate <laughs> on the internet. Mary Morrison is not a contract killer. Um, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave there. Um, okay, okay, <laughs> yeah. So, um, I think we we've kind of covered all the the questions that we can cover without kind of going beyond season one really um i just think is there anything any of you would like to say um that's not been said so far that that can apply to season one me Rebecca. <laughs> I, just, I just want to just we've talked a lot about obviously um to the main characters will and hannibal and, and jack and i just want to give a shout out to how brilliant chilton is oh yes in this yep 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 i can't believe we haven't mentioned chilton mm. right and Raul Esparza. he is so no perfect he, he is take brilliant. the odiousness of of the way that anthony heel plays it in silence of the lambs and just he's so i love him i, I love him so much in, in that role and he's pathetic and horrible and you kind of feel for him in, in a weird you way you have to love him and he's thinking as well about what you're saying about clothing and the way like his dress the way they style him he looks like a you know a bad lawyer it, he's dressed so specifically and i think he plays that just from i mean and he's he's barely in it actually he's not in that many episodes and i always think he's in more yeah. than he is because so so fantastic I think only two episodes of season one yeah and he just makes such an impact because that character is important and it is going to carry on being important. And I just, he's, when I watched it, he was, I honestly had to check that it wasn't the same actor as was in Science of the Lambs. I knew it couldn't be because time, age, <laughs> but he was so, he was so captures that. And I just think he's brilliant in it. And probably we'll talk more about Chilton as we yeah. move to season two and three again. But I hope so. I just, he's, I just wanted to shout yeah. out to Chilton because I love him. Yeah, yeah he's you perfect. Know, they, they, I read something years ago, a couple of years ago, um, and this is not about Raul Esparza, but it was about Scott Thompson, who uh, plays Jimmy Price, one of the uh, FBI uh, lab guys. And it was saying that he was really horribly miscast in the show. And to me, that is a fundamental misunderstanding of what is great about the show and what makes it work and i think raul esparza also taps into that and mm. that is that it is at its heart queer it just mm. it is when raul esparza gets going later on he is operatic in his ridiculousness and he sells it and he knows his character knows everything that's going on and he's too mm. ridiculous to actually convince anybody you know where where will is tragic jack is god and hannibal is satan 
you know, here comes Chilton just being hapless, stupid Chilton. (laughs) And he's wonderful. And I think Scott Thompson also brings a similar sort of vibe, if not the same kind of, you know, impact, simply by, you know, himself being queer. Um, And lending that sort of, I I, I don't want to like, say something tacky so i won't but well i probably will um (laughs) there's just there's a certain energy about the show that from the outset and i think those characters those actors help to sustain Mm -hmm. it that says yeah we're different you know we may look like the others but we're not and let me tell you why Mm -hmm. and like rebecca is saying rose farza is just oh god (laughs) he is the best Uh, I would watch him like read the phone. (laughs) (laughs) And he was funny. You know, I was at this, I was at this um, thing that Matt, the critic, Matt Zeller Seitz was doing in New York a few years ago. Um, It was like a panel discussion about uh, Hannibal and fan creativity. And, you know, he, he was asking for people and I was like, Oh, let me talk. Let me talk. Let me talk. So he's like, well, I can't give you any money. And I'm like, I'll come up to New York, you know, which wasn't cheap, but I was like, I'll totally come to New York. And so I'm on a stage with like Janice Poon at Zoller Sites, uh, Layla Taylor, who is a fan and also has written a wonderful book um, on black Gothic, Uh, a couple of other people who are really interesting to listen to and uh, Raul Esparza, who's sitting next to me, and he seemed really surprised that people seemed to get his character. Um, you know, he was like really pleased. <laughs> like, I don't know if it's like an actor ego lack of thereof thing or what, but he was like, oh, so you guys saw that. He's like, yeah, I totally, you know. Um, and it was really charming. And I think, you know, that's that's one of the beauties of Hannibal is that there's just so much going on. It It never gets worse on rewatch it just gets better yeah agreed agreed and i think as well kind of just you know we obviously talked about uh Raul, but also um uh you know eddie Azard as well as gideon um and that just the 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 you know kind of the oh, i've forgotten the name of the episode now i've closed my mdb so i can't see it <laughs> but the you know kind of the whole what is it colombian necktie thing but just the way that kind of you know Izzard has this you know kind of this you know, kind of unassuming weaselliness and confidence um it, again is just is is you know kind of beautiful addition I think to mm. um to the, the the you know the wider guest cast and the you know the kind of sense of the universe I think it's called roti episode yeah. i'm not mm. sure how to pronounce it i you know <laughs> what we've learned from this episode is that none of us are any good at french roti <laughs> <laughs> is a kind of um nun bread isn't it um yeah i don't, I don't think it's that different... <laughs> no it's an entirely different food called roti that we're being <laughs> referenced um uh yeah is there anything else that anybody wants to get in at this point yeah, one more thing. Sorry. <laughs> I'm just it's it's lack of other people to talk to plus Hannibal. I just I mean I would keep this here all night, I'm sorry. But this is one just, just one thing. But this is but, why we need to do the other two episodes so that we have That's right. I mean I didn't realize that I could say this much about episode one. I mean season one. <laughs> um who 
was it that was talking about uh was it down that was talking about uh the the murder of the nurse yeah yeah that's me so yeah the other thing that that i think is striking about that episode is and that sequence is when it's will who's doing it they go to that directly after the commercial break um and the, the credits I'm, i can't remember it's credits commercial break both neither um and that's the first time that we don't have the pendulum so we're just mm. right there with will and suddenly you know he is an aggressor in a way that he hasn't been with the sort of buffer of the pendulum and i love you know where in uh fromage that's the first time we see hannibal sort of be serial serial killers you know cannibal psychologist hannibal or psychiatrist hannibal lecter that's i think really the first time that we see the true terrifying nature horror i don't want to go so far as horror but you know like what what it is that will can do mm-hmm. and what it says about him mm-hmm. and i love that because he is brutal in that scene more so than he's been at any other point when he's been imagining himself in that one he is the killer he enacts the Mm -hmm. entire crime it's not just you know distance it's very personal with the you know the eyeball thing and and everything and and that also is just it's one of my favorite sequences even though it's hard to watch because Mm -hmm. of what it's doing with his character Agree. It's just such a great show. <laughs> listening to this and watch it. It's the best show ever. It really is. Um, how many episodes of Hannibal on the Cody? It's probably uh, about so 36. But, um, 36. 36. Yeah. So, yeah. Maybe we should do 36 episodes. <laughs> Although, perhaps just that would. Each uh, episode, you know. <laughs> that would make us. We'd need to re- re- rename the podcast, but I think. Um, <laughs> I think, well, I, I'm, gl- I'm glad I was right when I thought there's plenty to say. Let's do more than one episode about Hannibal. Mm. Um, I mean, we, we've not even talked about Dr. Bloom, um, really. We'll do that again. Well, the dogs, we, really. We've not talked about the dogs. Which... Uh... Oh, the dogs! <laughs> <laughs> we have to save the dogs for season two because that's when we can talk about Buster and okay. not just Winston. Sure, sure. Yeah. Sure. But... Uh, but if you haven't watched it, none of the dogs die. And that's really important to know because yes. people if that might put you off. left yeah. and right, yeah. but the dogs, dogs do not die. They're fine. <laughs> Buster gets a little bang- banged up, but he's okay. <laughs> Which spawned like on... one of the best memes or like <laughs> fan things ever. So. Wow, okay. Um, I haven't watched the Sons of the Lambs for 20 years or so, but I see I was reading about it in Kim Newman's book Nightmare Movies last night and isn't that I think about Jane Gum as well that he, you know that he has no ability to empathize with human beings but Clarice kicks his dog or something and, <laughs> and he howls with uh, with rage so not he's all, all but... about precious yeah. <laughs> oh yeah of course he is <laughs> um, uh, you hurt my well. dog don't you make me hurt your dog <laughs> <laughs> Ah, brilliant. <laughs> I think what I'm going to do is I, when I've finished re-watching all of Hannibal, I'll watch The Signs of the Lambs just because that's the missing bit. Even though it 
doesn't really, it's not going to follow on or anything. And I'm kind of afraid. I've not really watched any of the movies since seeing the the show. I'm kind of afraid they all feel a bit weak in comparison. But um, think of it yeah. as a palimpsest of texts that each one yeah. is in some way or another speaking to the others, and it actually yeah. works really well. Yeah, actually, that's true, and that's something I, I meant to say but didn't say. Thank you for reminding me, Laurie. Yeah, uh, I do like the fact that... Um, I love the fact, actually, that the TV show Handle can, seems to take choice aspects of the aesthetics of both The Sons of Lambs and Manhunter. Um, you know, it's just... Uh, you've got, like, the, the modernist bugalo that... Um, the amazingly named Dr. Badalia de Maurier uh, lived in, which is very like the, the the home of the Tooth Fairy from Manhunter. But then yeah. you've got, you know, you've got the, um, the Baltimore Criminally Insane uh, Institute sanatorium, which is obvious. It's not, it's not a copy or anything, but it's clearly inspired by the version of that place that was shown in Silence, Death of the... Um, the walls and, and, and the bars and things like that. And of course, because the character of Dr. Gideon, who's already in there, um, you, even though this is years before we know that Hannibal gets there, we, we get to have, we, we get to walk down that corridor and Dr. Bloom sits in that chair like Clarice mm. does in the movie. And Final spoiler warning for those who've not seen Hannibal season one, we're about to talk about the ending to the season. And soon after that, uh, Ian and Stella will return for our full spoiler discussion of the season, which will include more of that kind of thing. So, last chance to go and watch season one right now. It feels like this is like the perfect moment to, to you know, to kind of make the connection about the way that the season, season one ends um, mm. with this inversion of yes, yes. relationship. Uh, and, and, it's, and the you know, music! Yeah, there's such a knowing moment, isn't it? Of kind of, you know... It's okay. He's still free, but his <laughs> will, you know, will. The it, music, yeah. the music is from ha the film Hannibal as well. It is. It is. Yeah. Vito Corleone oh, is. is, is yeah. yeah, it's the opera that uh, Hannibal and Patsy yeah. uh, and Patsy yeah. go yeah. to. Yeah, yeah, in the film. Yeah, in the film, and so it's yeah. that. I mean, talking. That's the humor of the show. It's like you know what? We're just gonna throw the music from. I mean. Because it 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 defies narrative realism as well. It's like basically, mm. I loved that music from that movie. So you come and I'm gonna put you in right here. Yeah. And Hannibal's gonna walk down the hall like an asshole, and and <laughs> it's gonna be all you know, sort of. And the music augments that at the same time as it kind of captures sort of Will's real hell. You know, when it starts and he stands there at the beginning of the hallway, just like. And then started yeah. walking down the hall. And you're just like, you dick. And I'm sorry, but it's true. And he is. And it's so wonderful because that music, you know, he can hear it in his head. And he's just like, this is the best moment of my life. It really is. And he just walks down the yeah. hall having the best moment of his life. And if you don't know what music is, it doesn't take anything away from yeah. that moment. But if you do, it's... It's wonderful little. Yeah, have you seen that? There's a, a kind of deep structure analysis of the um, the way that that kind of the journey between Will and Hannibal kind of works across the first season, from him being up on the top 
of um, you know the kind of book level in Hannibal's office. And there's uh, some analysis about how it's you know the whole first season is very much about kind of luring the frightened little animal down to the point where you can trap it. So that there's that whole kind of transition from you know kind of just waiting and coaxing and being calm um, to that yeah that kind of fun and then we then you know so not Hannibal's aim throughout the first season isn't clearly always to get Will to that place but to get him to the point where he's you know his existence is completely controlled um, by Hannibal. I really really like that journey. Yeah. My my argument was. In the, in the essay that I was talking about, mine was basically that season one Hannibal Lecter is, I saw it as, as sort of meta-commentary, the series as meta-commentary on authorship. And it's season one Hannibal that is the auteur, that is, you know, I am writing this and I am writing you and I am writing your life. And I have decided that you won't know that you have encephalitis because I don't want you to do that, you know? And so he's very much in control. And I think, yeah, but I mean, I think that's that's also one of the beauties of the show is that it lends itself to those kinds of analyses that there's so much going on that it really, it works on multiple levels and it, it, it's a commentary on so many different things. Yeah. And it's, oh, it's a really great structure for season one as well. I feel vindicated that we're just talking about the show season by season because the fact that we the season follows Will to that cell and then you stop. Obviously, the story goes on later on, but it's just a, a just a perfect ending because the audience knows from the start that Hannibal uh, ends up there. Um, but they, what they're given is the inverse of that. Mm. It's, um, it's a and, lovely thing. And it, and it also, the fact that we track that kind of psychological slide on Will's part throughout the episodes, what I think is really, again, to use one of the first words I think uh, you used, Rebecca, the audacity of it. Um, you know, I don't think there's a, like a treading water episode in it where it's just... Mm they solve a crime or, or or whatever every episode seems to have um a change um a, a descent in will's mental state and things like that it's tracking it all the way through um and and therefore and also when you've got subplots about jack's wife and things like that um it really is um I think Laurie, you said it was ahead of its time uh, in terms of you know so much TV serialized now. They're doing an amazing job of kind of not being serialized, but also totally being serialized. You know the episodes. I should try and just sit down and watch a random episode and 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 see what that's like. But it but the narrative um, throughout the whole show and the characterizations are so kind of linear and and, and compulsive. And, and everything is so fluid. I think that's great. It is a very satisfying season, actually. Which is not to say I'm not going to go and watch season two very soon. <laughs> well, um, I think, have we have we covered everything we'd like to say about season one? I think so. Probably um, not. Yeah. <laughs> well. <laughs> well. Uh, this <laughs> yes. I mean, do we have a, a year? Maybe. Oh, <laughs> Maybe. God. 
<laughs> maybe we'll we'll do some more anyway we, we shall we shall we shall talk uh, um about future seasons at the very least so laurie rebecca we've covered season one of hannibal at, well, at least as far as we can in the limited time that we have right now it's been tremendous fun and you'll be coming back to join us for season two won't you um so thank you both thank you very much laurie thank you for having me it was really delightful and thank you rebecca thank you very much and we look forward to you coming back So welcome back. This is Dan. I'm once again here with Kirsty, Stella and Ian. I'm just re- reminding you listeners of who we are because you might have been away from us for a very long time listening to, to uh, Kirsty and I talk to Laurie and Rebecca. That was incredible fun and we're so grateful to, to them for spending that time with us and we look forward to them coming back and talking about seasons two and three of Hannibal at some point in the near future. Um... We're going to put links and details in the show notes to Laurie and Rebecca's various works, especially as um, pertain to Hannibal particularly. Um, but for right now, I think it's time for us to talk about... Um, well, it's time for us to give Hannibal Season 1 the Now the Podcast <laughs> Starts treatment. Um, Ian, I'm tempted to open the discussion with you. Okay. Um, maybe that was just because you had your hand up and, and that was like a psychological <laughs> sing, 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 signal to me, but maybe you were just yawning. Anyway. <laughs> um, yeah, well, also, I thought you were going to say because I'm the newest to this, um, I hadn't watched Hannibal. Again, one of the wonderful things about doing this podcast is I've, you know, A, you go and rewatch movies you think you made your mind up about in the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> to be wrong but also i haven't quite there's so many things to watch i hadn't quite got the message about how good hannibal was um and it really is very good um especially the first season um i would say i was gobsmacked because obviously you watch everything i've watched this on amazon it was on netflix before yeah and i was gobsmacked to find out it was nbc because uh as we were saying to you know, people like Stephen Volk the other week, we're, you know, getting horror onto terrestrial TV when you don't know if, you know, little five-year-olds accidentally watching or granny might have tuned in is, is exactly why they're very conservative. I was gobsmacked this was NBC. But what's strange, and I do think there's probably, there's probably acres of essays to write about this, is Walking Dead is like this as well. It seems to be there are no boobs, there's no sex, but there is so much gore that's permissible. Yeah. That's all right in American culture. Mm-hmm. The dismemberment, the sadism, the, I mean, really, yeah. real stuff that really, I'm I'm fairly strong stomach and I was eating my tea watching this and having to put my plate down. Because <laughs> it's, a, it's a disgusting, it's a disgusting, <laughs> depraved, beautiful program, but it's, it's, it's has something happened now that films programs like this can be on you know can you imagine this something like this being made by the bbc no. but, but, <laughs> but you, could, you would have said that a few years ago about nbc 
no. But there's a there's a kind of a fun anecdote about um the in uh, one of the episodes that when we talk about in the in, we talked about in the discussion um Coquille, um where the the, the weeping angels. Mm-hmm. Um, and because it's two naked people, <laughs> kind of apparently the uh, you know kind of television standards people were like, no, you need to have like more blood, more blood, so that we can't see the kind of you know cracks of the behinds. <laughs> so we just need more gore to you know to conceal the the obvious nudity. We are a strange yeah. civilization. It's just an odd yeah. situation. <laughs> you see the makeup artist been like, we're like, we're like half okay. The <laughs> We're like we like the violence, but oh we, no, we're not. No, not like, yeah. Just, <laughs> just cut each other up in the arena, yeah. But don't show any nudity. Mm. I also love the way that I mean we've said this before about The Walking Dead. Nobody swears either. Nope. But in terms of this show, that can, that works beautifully with the aesthetic. I think because mm. it's all about yeah. um, what's Hannibal's word courtesy and you know shunning discourtesy yes. and things like yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, so don't, therefore, they don't swear to be honest, but yeah, they don't. Um, it is, it is strange the priorities of network television, though. Mm. That I, Cannibal contains some of the most graphic scenes I think I've ever seen. You know, and so does The Walking Dead. Come to think of it, so what is that about? <laughs> like, well, Stella, I, can, I think I maybe answer. this is the point for you to come in. I, I know we've discussed this on the podcast before, but not when Ian was here. So yeah, you know, this so, is definitely your area, Stella. So, basically, NBC, CBS, ABC, all those ones, they're all fully advertiser-supported networks, so all their money comes from the advertisers. They come under federal law, federal ruling, um, called the FCC, or the Federal Communications Commission, and that's basically their um, like Ofcom-type situation. Mm. And because that's a you know, federal thing, they can say, no swearing, no tits, no this, no that, no the other. Um and then, when, I mean, it still makes Hannibal stick out as being so graphic because it is on ad-supported television. But then if you move over to The Walking Dead, because that's on basic cable, that doesn't come under the FCC. So mm-hmm. The Walking Dead and American Horror Story, The Strain, all those things, they have their own internal broadcasting standards and practices department, and it's mm-hmm. just up to them to decide. So if you look at The Walking Dead, there's no, there's no swearing, but there is swearing on American Horror Story. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the same same economic model where they've got cable carrier fees and and advertisers, um, but they've got their own internal broadcasting standards and practices department. So it's it's up to them. And mm-hmm. certainly with American Horror Story, their broadcasting standards department have basically just gone. Oh, what's the point? <laughs> Do what you want. <laughs> There's just yeah. no point anymore. With nine seasons in, it seems to be working. Go for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. with M- NBC, um just sort of stay on the in this vein rather than having to come back to it um obviously my initial reaction when watching anything that's american and, and tv and horror is to start thinking about well, who's made it why have they made it what are the conditions of it being made and in the early 2010s nbc were floundering a little bit so they were always in the top three in terms of their um viewership their advertising money that they got they were always doing really well and then in the like last couple of years of the 90s, early 2010s, NBC were were at the bottom of the pile of the big of the big five networks, so they were having to really pull it back. Um, and in doing so, and needing to pull it back, they or any commercial channel, any network channel, they 
create audience targets to sell to the advertisers. They're not necessarily interested in what the audience wants. They're interested in what the advertisers want. And in the early 2000s, NBC was saying to their ad, ad people, they were like, look, we want to be as particular as possible with our demographics that we sent up, that we make our programs for so that we can give you guys more specific targets so you know who, you, who you're going to advertise to. <coughs> And rather than just thinking about age and gender when they were looking at their data as who's watching what and when, they started to look at audience behaviour as well. So they was they were quite pioneering in that respect, but they wanted to be as specific as possible with their audience target so they could take that to the advertisers and go, we're, we're going to have, you know, females aged 18 to 35, they're in the market for a new car, they might want a new kitchen at some yeah. point. So really, really, really specific stuff. And mm. nobody really was really thinking that way. So that specific thinking had an effect on the type of drama that they were doing. They saw what ha was happening with The Walking Dead and the immense success. And like Kirsty said, they're like, yeah, we need a piece of that pie because we're struggling here. We're losing viewers, you know, by the thousand over time because people are starting to get Netflix. People are getting bored with network. So they were like, right, we need to pull something out of the bag here. And it needs to be incredible, which led them to make such a bold move as they did with Hannibal. And it was an incredibly bold move because it is... It is beautiful, but it's really, really graphic. Yeah. And it's that's one of the reasons why it kind of didn't fit very well on the channel, which led to its eventual cancellation. Oh. Um, what, three seasons in and they cancelled it. And it was no. it was a fan favourite, yeah. but it didn't produce... Um, did I write the figures down? I don't think I did. But it didn't basically it didn't reach the numbers expected of a broadcast network. So they're spending all this money on it, and it was expensive, they're mm -hmm. saying to the advertisers, yeah. these are specific groups that we will offer you via via Hannibal, and there just wasn't the numbers. So even though they had all these specifics in place, they're still at the end of the day a broadcast network, and they should still be fetching massive, massive numbers. And the advertisers were like, mm. eh, we don't want to pay as much for that because the numbers aren't aren't doing it, mate. Sorry. Right. So it's yeah. not quite. So yeah. So it's not quite. You know, the HBO effect hasn't quite reached. Not not by twenty not by twenty two thousand thirteen, now more so. But mm. this is still in the very very early, early years of of channels yeah, really relying on serial drama to to bring audiences and to keep audiences. Mm. Now it's it's the landscape shifted again. But so you know, two thousand eleven when it's been in development, and then when it's been out in two thousand thirteen, mm. it's still. In terms of my research, it's still the very you know it's the, only the first three years of the horror cycle that that exploded onto American TV. So it was still a bit, I don't know if it maybe it should have been done for a channel where it had more more of a easier to find audience perhaps. I guess if it's, NBC. Yeah, it's interesting because it ha it comes out isn't it, at the same time as we get things like Bates Mattel yeah. and things. So there's this kind of um, Again, you know, kind of postmodern, you know, kind of rehashing. Yeah. And I don't mean that in a pejorative way, but rehashing of kind of familiar. Yeah. Well, plundering of IPs, basically. <laughs> yeah. What's got, what's got audience recognition? We can. It's the built in audience, isn't in it? Because they know the yeah. audience that's built in. For me, there's, there's two things I'd like to contribute to that. Is One is, is that when we. You know, kind of when they, the the DVDs and Blu-rays came came out, which of course I got, they were <laughs> kind of BBFC rated them as eighteen, which just shows shows you the just the kind of level of mm. kind of graphicness. Um, so it doesn't surprise you know it doesn't surprise me at all that I mean critically in kind of fan reaction it was massive yeah. and it was also one of the first big fandoms to kind of blow up on you know kind of social media platforms like Tumblr. 
Um, and you know, but it you know, but it doesn't surprise me at all that it didn't kind of get the numbers um, actually on uh, on broadcast because it because it was never really a kind of you know properly broadcast show. It felt like they were trying to do trying to trying to do two different things, yeah. you know, satisfy advertisers but also make this kind of critically worthy yeah. thing, um, and not you know, and kind of. Brian Fuller was clearly, you know, more in that one camp of yeah. I'm going to make this thing. And, you know, he he allegedly has this kind of, you know, had this big arc for sort of five seasons and it was all kind of plotted out in his head yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Oh, um, oh it's a shame. <laughs> but but what's interesting, though, is is that, you know, kind of the, for me, and again, we're not, 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 not spoiler territory, but it's it feels like kind of the first season is sort of Hannibal, Hannibal as a show, not the character, sort of finding its feet yeah. and kind of getting increasingly confident with what it is. Um, and what it's doing, what it's saying. Um, and then by the time we get to the kind of final episodes of season three, it's just, it, you know, it feels like it's so confident and it doesn't give a crap anymore mm. about, you know, about the kind of even entertaining the idea that it's for a mainstream audience. Yes. <laughs> it's just, you know, let's chuck it all out. Let's just, you know, go crazy. Um, and so there's a sort of delicious uh, kind of ostentatiousness then that journey of traveling to, from something that feels initially in the very first episode is feeling sort of kind of procedural, yeah. but something a bit different, but yeah. it still feels like familiar to where it kind of goes. Yeah. Um, it's quite crazy time. That's what I was going <laughs> to add on that it it's, I think in, in the first season, it was sitting on this balance, like a seesaw balance. It's like, is it a crime procedural or is it a horror? And I was I was watching the episodes, and each one it was like, it's, it's it's very formulaic, and I didn't expect it to be that formulaic. So we've got you know we've got a murder of the weeks kind of essentially going on, and then there's a bit where they're in the you know the pathology lab, and then they have to go out to the scene, and then they come back, and then Hannibal's in his kitchen, and it's like just hitting these same points every episode. And I was like, okay, so it does feel in its form like a mm. network television procedural drama. And then somebody's been gored on a load of antlers. What am I watching? Who is who is this for? It's like so I, mm. I, so I can see how it kind of missed what it was trying to do in terms of mm. we're going to make this. It's beautiful. It's incredible. But it's a procedural, so it'll fit with all our other dramas like Law and Order and Chicago Fire and all those things. It sits in that box. But then also ah, but it's a horror as well, and there's a cannibal in it. What? Mm. So it just mm. it, at the start it was just a bit. It's What's an, going on it's here? an unusual beast, and it kind yeah. of what is? Why are antlers so scary as well? Because they are. Because it kind of straight away <laughs> reminded me of True Detective, which obviously came after that. Yeah. The first episode of that has antlers and Roy, and yeah. and has a almost almost that's Hannibal, but done exactly right. That first season of True Detective. Mm. Um. Without any compromise, because I believe that was on. Was that HBO? It was HBO, yeah. yeah it was, so that it was HBO. it's almost like Hannibal wouldn't have happened because somebody at NBC wanted a recognisable property. So, but it's wonder what would have happened if that idea had somehow developed at HBO. Mm. Like how much more? Per it was. It's really good. Don't get me wrong. I'm not. Mm. I'm not dismissing it, but I can also see why it failed for NBC. Yeah, and why. I guess in some areas, maybe it does feel a little bit prosaic and then it's mad. So it's a weird, it is a weird mix. Yeah. Um, maybe that adds to the madness of it. <laughs> I think for the crime 
people who like crime shows, there might not have been enough crime in it. And people that like horror shows, there might not have been enough horror in it because they're having to balance it over time. So it's just people that like cooking shows. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Hurry up and cut them up. I want to see the cookie. <laughs> <laughs> Just to predictably play devil's advocate for a second, um, is, is that kind of not what the the properties are anyway? In terms of they are, you know, serial killer crime thrillers. Yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah the psychological thrillers, aren't they? It's the sort of standard way of describing science. Around. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, so in, in terms of, you know, where it fits on television, I totally get what you're saying in terms of form, Stella, and kind of where that fits on network, but it's not out of keeping with what Harris is, you know, kind of not. No, it's, it's very much in keeping with those. And yeah, I, yeah. I, in a way, I think one of the effects that The Science of the Lambs had on cinema was that so because of its huge success, other movies that were kind of crime thrillers kind of started to go, oh, we need to be a, a little bit horror. Yeah. We need to we need to add a bit more, uh, and also and horror films kind of went. Oh, we need to be a bit more forensic. We mm. need to be a bit more profilery, mm. and therefore yeah. you got a lot of uh, you know rip off kind of movies in the nineties, like the appropriately named Copycat, things like that. Yeah, <laughs> but also also Seven comes out of that. Yeah. Oh yeah. Which is this? Which is its own weird masterpiece. Well, yeah, ex- yeah. Seven is the example of the of the rip off that finds a way of elevating the genre yeah. and takes the next step. Becomes its own. Everyone, everyone after that was like, "We need a seven. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, so, <laughs> so yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, but but as as a property, I found it. This is. I mean, a lot of this is a discussion for about season two because they do this a lot in season two. Is it's almost like it's made for somebody who doesn't know the books or the films. We see, yeah. And then That's if you funny. do know them, you're there going, "What are you doing? <laughs> oh, right, you're, you're playing with me now, aren't you?" But so it's, it's, it's really entertaining if you know the books. Yeah, it stories, is. You know, I don't the mean... stories because they they deliberately they they deliberately uh, they deliberately use your knowledge against you, which is brilliant. Um, so, do you think? I mean, this is something I, I kind of meant to um, ask to to Laura and Rebecca, but maybe it's something we'll talk about as we go into later series. But do you think it? What Stella? Yeah. <laughs> are you a fan of the the Thomas Harris books or the other films? Uh, I've never read them. Okay. So, so I don't know. <laughs> so I'll just ask you then. I mean, because uh, Ian said he he's the one who's come to this latest, but I think you'd only seen the first episode of Hannibal before this. Yes. Yeah that right so what did you make of it and do you feel that it worked as you know as someone who's not familiar with the source material so much how did you feel it it worked um i did enjoy it and i will finish it and i'm gonna have to finish it because i'm gonna write about it in my book as well um i was surprised that it leaned so much into being a procedural okay i thought it was going to be a more, just, more, more, I don't know. I thought it was going to be more complicated than it was, I think. And, you know, there there is layers and character development and all that lovely stuff going on. But certainly in the first first half of the first season, I was just like, I just feel like I'm watching a, a gory CSI. And it's, mm. well, that's, you know, pretty savage <laughs> thing to say about it. I wasn't, <laughs> I think as a whole piece, I say, yeah, this is, 
in the first instance, I've written the word beautiful down so many times because it just is. It's beautiful to look at. I feel like every frame could be, you know, a poster on your wall. It's gorgeous. But I was just, if I don't know. If that totem pole is a, a <laughs> poster on the wall, I would get the fuck out of it. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I think I was just, I think I was expecting from the way people have talked about it over the past, what, five years, um, I thought it was going to be more complex and I wasn't, I wasn't aware that it lent so much into being a procedural. So I was watching it and then when I was thinking, well, well yeah, it's on NBC, isn't it? So, if, so that make that does make sense for it to take that, that sort of narrative form. Um, whether it leans out of that in the second and third season, I don't, I don't know. Maybe it does get more complex, but... For the first ones, I was I just felt like I was watching yeah a slightly more horrific version of things like Law and Order, <laughs> but you know that's not to say that that's not <laughs> enjoyable because that's all good stuff too in its own way. But yeah, I was it wasn't what I was expecting. I think it was fairly complex if you think about all the twists and turns as they are. We are we in spoiler territory now? Yeah, yeah, as, we are. As, as, it, as it leads to because basically the the sort of end point is is obviously at some point Hannibal, you know, because all we know is Will Graham was the man who brought Hannibal down. That's the sort of lore of the original books and stuff and suffered greatly doing it. And they've done the whole, well, let's stretch a prequel out. Um, <laughs> uh, which, which is really good. But also they're not saying this is canon. This isn't like, you know, this isn't, you know, this is its own thing. So they're doing what the hell they want with it. Um, but but um, the fact that the aim of, you know, the arc of the arc of season one is actually the opposite is, oh, this is where Will Graham ends up in Baltimore State Penitentiary for the criminally insane or whatever it's called. Um, that's the opposite of how you think you know this story ends. And I haven't seen season three, so I don't know. I don't know anyway at the end of season three, but... If you think, you know, Manhunter and Science of the Lambs are both post Hannibal being brought to justice. Um, and in this, I guess they could have carried on, but then I know they start using things from Red Dragon in season two that aren't in Red Dragon, you know, but they use them in a different way just to mess with us. But, um, but no, I thought it was quite complicated. If you sort of just think about all the different things where you end up with, I thought my favourite my favourite episode was, and it was the most horror one as well, and this is where Kelly stopped watching with me, so that's how scary it was, um, is, is the whole <laughs> woman good barometer. in the woods. The whole, the, mount, the malnutrition, the, you know, the woman in the woods. The, that's a sort of American tradition as well. You get that with Mama and, um, and those sort of movies. Weird people living in the woods. And there's, an, there's a X-Files episode as well, which touches on that people live people living feral in the woods is scary for some reason isn't mm. it? and those mm. episodes for me are really successful and then what happens to her in that hyperbaric chamber is pretty amazing as well yeah yeah that's that was my most horrifying moment yeah there I are think. a lot of twists and turns and i think it starts off being oh i'm a procedural murder of the week but it very quickly goes no I think after about episode two or three, you realise no, this is this is an ongoing narrative, and you can't watch these episodes out of order. Mm. So in that way, you know, you could stick, you know, in other NBC shows, you could stick them on in any order because that's kind of how they're designed. 
it's doctors and nurses or it's friends or it's you know whatever <laughs> what, whatever's going on you kind of don't need to worry too much about you know it's it's all about the story of the week i think i just meant i didn't think it would echo all that stuff quite mm. so much i thought it mm. would be just straight straight up complicated drama without mm. without hitting all these sort of repeated yeah sequences no i know what you I mean i just yeah, didn't I, think yeah, it I would do that mean. i i did initially so bit, hmm? i did initially go i'm not going to like this if it's story if it's murder of the week yeah yeah because already on episode two when they had the fungus brain thing oh yeah which is just <laughs> fucking horrible it was really good oh it's brilliant it's so inventive but it's oh it's i'm i've like i said i've got a strong stomach and this show has turned my stomach more than so many other things i can do <laughs> um the being buried alive and being used as a sort of fun- fungus thing can i can i ask you a question though ian did it like on the one hand make turn your stomach but then in other moments make you go oh look at that plate of food it really made me i think it's a really good um i mean i'm not vegetarian but it kind of made me go oh god we are just eating virtually sentient creatures and it's a good reminder that pigs are pretty much us and, yeah. Uh, yeah and and, and it's it was weird because again they're using you know I, I bet they're using cut up bits of human uh, not of human but of everything every other beast going apart from human and that's kind of disgusting and it does make yeah. me think oh they've got a great big liver there yeah. and the only reason we're feeling grossed out is because it might be human but do you know what it's yeah really gross <laughs> um, yep. he says you know i've been chicken for tea tonight but you know it's uh i tell you this what watching so, so much hannibal in a small space of time has has kind of messed up my uh visual recognition of food and human viscera the other day <laughs> i came into the the living room and mum had the tv on and i looked at the screen and thought oh someone's <laughs> someone's <laughs> Someone's preparing a meat dish, and then I gl- uh, then I blinked and realised no, she's watching Holby City, and the camera's <laughs> in- inside someone's stomach. So yeah, kind of fun, fun, fun related trivia on the show is that they had um, a, a kind of cannibal consultant, so somebody who's who's kind of an expert in. Um, okay, well, if you're going to eat humans, like, what would you do? What are the best pits? How would you serve it? Yeah. How would you cook it, etc. Um, uh, and they also then have a, 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 yeah, kind of a, a culinary artist, Janice Poon, who it's always her job to kind of, you know, teach Mass Mickelson kind of, you know, the culinary techniques and also arrange those beautiful kind of That's plates that he serves up. Uh, platters, so, there, yeah. you know, there's a, there's a whole book that's just about the food that you can buy wow. called Feeding Hannibal, which is all about her work on the show. So, so it's not, it's not, it's not like if you, this is illegal and a bit big display yeah. killing people <laughs> for the purposes of eating them is wrong. But if yeah. you did, here's some recipes. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously then it's, it's not, it's not, you know, the long pig in the book. There are other meats that are substituted. I have um, to ask how you become a cannibal consultant without first getting arrested. <laughs> I, th- I think from my understanding, I've forgotten the name of the guy entirely. I've mislaid it, but um, uh, I think he comes from a sort of kind of anthropological background. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah whatever. Yeah. That old chestnut. Yeah. I- <laughs> Well, I was in a really bad plane crash oh. in the Andes, and now this is. 
Oh dear. Okay, I just want to quickly talk about stuff that I love in the show that A, I didn't fully get to say last week in the discussion that we just heard, but also that the riffs a bit on what Ian and Stella have said. So, um, I love the way the show is a police procedural formulate, but but layers in very quickly mm. additional stuff. I, I love the first episode so much. As I said to Laurie and Rebecca, I love that it sets up a really engaging procedural team even before Hannibal enters the show. Uh, you know, I was quite happy to just watch more of this. Um, but then, as uh, you know, they very quickly and very elegantly kind of seed Hannibal's uh, malevolence and dangerousness into the very first story. The first episode, there's like... I think Hannibal comes into it about 20 minutes from the end. In that time, they solve the murder. They find the serial killer. They have a confrontation with the killer. And Hannibal demonstrates his hideous amoral, uh, you know, gamesmanship by ringing up the killer first and saying, they know. They know. Which is... A, a lovely moment. <laughs> um, all of that stuff is done with such efficiency, and mm-hmm. uh, and the fact that you, and you also within that twenty minute period, you get the relationship between Will and Hannibal. You know that's where it starts. Um, it it moves so quickly and so beautifully. I just think the first episode is so impressive. I will counter that by saying that I I also thought that the kind of killer of the week thing. Was a is a bit of a danger, not because the killers of the week aren't great, because they do come up with loads of different, um, incredibly inventive ways for people to be mad killers and, and to create <laughs> incredible death tableaus. But because I thought in this universe, you know, Hannibal himself is a, an extraordinary, terrifying character because he's such an intelligent human who is able to be a creative killer mm. and and if you surround him with loads of other genius killers then mm. it, it runs the risk of, of making him seem less special. I yeah. think they knew that within about two episodes. Maybe they knew that from the start. Hopefully they planned a little bit <laughs> yeah. a little bit more in advance than that. The series does that. It it kind of skirts that danger, but it veers away from it almost immediately. It's uh, is it? God, is the the cello player? Is that season two? That season no, one. That's season one. one. Yeah, it is. Yeah, because that was a moment when yeah. I was a bit okay. You may be overpopulated. You've maybe got the how many people get killed in Midsummer Murders? <laughs> yeah. Why does everyone get killed in Oxford? Um, and the, you know, kind of thing. And there was a little bit of, okay, maybe too many clever serial killers. Just, just starting to edge in there. Too many well-dressed, sophisticated, educated, yeah, um, yeah, <laughs> cultured. Most serial killers are mad. <laughs> you know, uh, I'll do a clang here, as Alan Moore said to me. Um, when, I was, <laughs> when I was interviewing him about From Hell years and years ago, he he was very much serial killers. Ninety nine percent of the time are less than us. They're not Hannibal Lecter in his memory palace. Um, 
you know, pulling the strings and listening to the Goldberg variations. I thought of that quote all the time when I was, for some reason, while I was, because he listens to Goldberg variations a lot, doesn't he? Um, it is a bit of a weird cliche. It's a bit like, autistics are more like Rain Man. It's a bit like serial killers are actually more like Buffalo Bill in the Silence of the Lambs. They're horrible, grim mm. perverts <laughs> who, uh, who we, uh, we, sh- we should condemn. But no, but you know what I mean? They're, they're not clever geniuses who are superhuman. No. They are grim. There's something very wrong with them. Who <laughs> generally kill women for horrible psychosexual reasons. Um, so, yeah, so, so having, having one Hannibal Lecter as an aberration who's very good at catching the, catching the, the horrible Buffalo Bills of this world is, is kind of something I could go with having, hey, there's so many of us guys walking around in suits and I do work with, <laughs> with cellos. Um, that, it, that was the time when it did feel a little bit like <laughs> it was jumping the shark. There was going to be a, a club for supervillains. And, uh, but I, I kind of think that is the exact moment that the series moves far enough away from it, though. I mean, I think that that killer Tobias, as he called, is yeah, Tobias Bench. He's wonderful name. See, I don't know, I don't know if that is a Thomas Harris derived name, but it sounds like one. I kind of love the the, the detail of that. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I th- you know the series almost boots that convention out of the door with a stunning fight scene, though. At that point, and um, but I'm just in there by that point. The, 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 yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm splitting, splitting hairs or sinews, um, fingernails. Um, but, um, but just again, the tableaus are just like the art department must have just had so much fun. Oh yeah. So we're just like, <laughs> what do you got to do today? We've got. I mean, that totem pole is. I wouldn't want it on my wall, but it was truly disturbing and satanic and like i said i've seen some things in uh in uh, i've seen in things movies. man and also the cello the cello yeah. coming out of somebody's body i mean amazing effects work apart from anything else and and they actually managed to disturb me which is yeah. pretty good going you know what i didn't get to mention this last week the bit that kind of sums up the beauty of horror in that it made me go, <laughs> but also, can I look at that a bit closer? Yeah. Is the, the character who's killed under, dragged under her bed and killed and left with a Chelsea smile or a Glasgow yeah, yeah. smile, as it's mm. called on Wikipedia. And there's this, yeah. there's the, just the moment where um, Will is imagining himself in the room and he looks to one side and, and the, 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 the corpse is there with the, the smiley yeah. face and the camera rack focuses oh, from yeah, Will yeah. and gives you a really good look for quite a long time at this where you're looking through the slice in the face and going, I can see her teeth. Yeah, yeah. No, no, <laughs> like, was, that, 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 was the, that was the episode though, where they went, right, we're going to be full-on horror movie because it's a scary woman in the woods. Um, but yeah, that, that really creeped me out, that whole episode yeah. in a brilliant way. Yeah. The rest of it, it's like, oh, this is gross police procedural. That one had me maybe feeling like I was being followed to, when I went up to bed, which is Again. a good horror movie. <laughs> You've got that, someone's behind me. <laughs> feeling. Just w- wonderful writing as well, though, that they created yeah, yeah. that monster but then made her sympathetic. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so you know, 
Um, yeah, but t- time is marching on, and I am also, yes. I am desperate to talk about season two because I just finished one yeah. today, and I think, I think, season one is a lot more straightforward, and season two is where for me the plot and what they did with the property they borrowed because they really played with me and got me. Um, so tune in. Fair enough. Another time. I'll keep going. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. yeah, as Ian says, we, we are kind of running out of time. Is there anything anybody would like to say about Hannibal season one before we wrap up this? Um, Kirsty, possibly you, you've you've said everything you want to, but maybe that can never happen. <laughs> no, I don't think it can. Um, I mean, I, I love season one, but I do think when people talk about the show, you know, in terms of you know the kind of beauty and it's you know it it's what makes it special and complex. I think that is very much about season two um, and, 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 and season three. Well, or we could debate the silly cave bear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a future debate point. Yeah. Cave bear, silly. Yeah, yeah. But, no, um, but also uh, the dogs, just the dogs, the, the um, Will Gray and Wolf pack. Yeah. Just, yeah. You know, they're just a lovely little kind of thing to just, you know, have them there as a as a fun, yeah. you know, well, lighter element. I do, I do love the way they're set up as as opposite. Yeah, it's it's obvious stuff, but opposite. He is Mister Memory Palace, and everything is in control. And Will is. I just like to stand in. A, I like to stand in a river. Yeah. And uh, yeah. That, 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 those as a hero and a protagonist and antagonist, it's uh, it's great. Yeah. It's interesting that they've made the decision, whereas Will Graham in the novels, or really the novel, because he's only really in Red Dragon, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's got a wife and son, and and he has a, and he's defending a, a a normal family life. But in the TV series, they've got nope, he doesn't. He just has dogs, lots of dogs. Yeah, lots of dogs. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm really looking forward to watching season three. Yeah. Um, I'm desperate to. I might even jump on it now because season, season two left me going. Actually, to be honest, I did watch it. Ten minutes of him in Paris it was quite fun. Um, yeah. Spoilers. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> we'll get there. We'll get there. Okay, so that was Hannibal season one. It's been a long time coming. We finally did it. There's lots more fun to be had yet. So, listeners, it's time for the Bag of Death. And I am joined once again by the marvellous Howard. Hello, Howard. Hello, listeners. Hello, Dan. Are you all right? Oh, I'm very excited, as I always am at this moment. So, listeners, this bag contains all the English-language horror films that both Howard and I have seen at some point in our long and meandering lives. And we never know which one's going to be drawn from the hat next. I am now rummaging. I'm going to try and get one from deep, deep within the pack. What have I got here? It is... The Plague of the Zombies. Now, oh. oh, wow. Class now. We seem to have gone to a bit of a trend where we talk about films that we have actually already talked a bit about on the show, but mostly last time we spoke about this movie, which was, I think, in our very first episode 
five, five years ago. And, and to be fair, I don't think that episode's on uh, this podcast feed, so some of our listeners haven't heard it. And we were mainly talking about the music then, but let's talk about this movie. So it's 1966, isn't it, Howard? Yes, it is, yes. It's um, mid, kind of mid-hammer, when they had a bit of a renaissance. Um, they sort of like, because things hadn't, some of the films in the early 60s hadn't gone so well, like The Phantom of the Opera, Edmonton, one or two others, the Dr. Jekyll film, and then suddenly there was this resurgence. I think Hammer's big success in the late 50s, early 60s had petered out somewhat because there were censorship changes and they were discouraged for making kind of from making full-on horror films. Um, right. So, and then that, that changed again. I'm not sure exactly how, to be honest, but we got the resurgence of Dracula then and we got more films and we got this film, which, yeah, is, which is... I think a bit of a classic, actually. It's one of the, one of the best films Hammer made. I um, think it, it works is. really well. It's great. I've seen it several times. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, seen. I've seen it a few times now. I've got it on DVD. And uh, a couple of years ago, the, Grimfest uh, screened uh, it in in Stockport at the oh, Plaza, right. and uh, our friend Ross and I were lucky enough to to go and see it. And uh, he'd never seen it before, and um, it went down really well. Um, so it, it's written and directed by John Gilling, and it's not connected to any previous Hammer series, not a sequel to anything. It's it's um, it's kind of a unique uh, entry in their canon, although it's part of a, a duo of films they're called the, uh, the Cornwall um, duo, I, I, I think fans refer to them as. Two movies, both set in Cornwall, both directed by John Gilling, kind of made back-to-back uh, at the same time. Um, with the same roughly the same cast as well. Um, but the, the Plague of the Zombies has a lot that's unique about it. So, Howard, why don't you talk about uh, what you remember and, and uh, know about the movie? Well, I just think it's... Um, it is, I just think it's, well, it's interesting, because when we started this, we were talking about, you know, when we started doing the podcast years ago, it was the films of Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. Uh, but this is a film that doesn't have Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee, although you can see them in the two main parts, perhaps. It has yeah. Andre Morel as the kind of hero, although he's a middle-aged hero, sort of getting on a bit, uh, and John Carson, uh, who was an actor I particularly admire, uh, as the villainous squire. And he's, it's, it's interesting, really, because he's, you know, he's dabbles in the dark arts and stuff. He's, he's been able to raise the dead, and what he does with these zombies is get them to work in his tin mine, so he doesn't have to pay anybody. Yes. That would be the, the kind of plot. He's got them all working down this mine. But he also... Um, kidnaps um, young women as well and has either way with them <laughs> yes well he's kind of modelled on um, the sort of um, Sir Hugo Baskerville archetype of the, the, the kind of well, the terrible squire. landlord yeah it's great because it is the only time that Hammer did zombies yes. their the, 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 the take on it and it works um I just think it's it's done really well. Like all the best Hammer films, the production values are really good. It's it's very professionally made. You know, there's a lot of expertise made in it, and it's got a really good cast. Andre Morel is terrific, and John Carson and Jacqueline Pierce is really good. Uh, I think Michael Ripper's there as well, um, with the policeman who sort of puts his hands on his braces. Right. Can't yeah. Yeah. Uh, and there's some there's a particularly memorable sequence set in a, a graveyard, which is a should I say it's a dream sequence? Yes, yeah, yeah, that was fine. I didn't 
dream sequences or anything like that but it's it's i think that's the, the sequence that people remember and it is really scary it is really well done and it's just fast paced and it's um it's good it just it, it's just a really good film and it's made at that time when hammer kind of had this sort of like got back into what, what they you know um got back into the earlier style like the earlier films and uh yeah, it, it kind of it kind of feels quite like Kiss of the Vampire or something like that. One one of their kind of first flood of um, of horror films. Um, I think we should say that for you know for listeners who who, who aren't familiar with it, um, although it fits into Hammer's gothic horror kind of period horror overall style, it does nudge in other directions, and it's important to note that. Uh, it's the I think it's the last kind of major zombie film made before George A. Romero's Night of the Living Dead, which forever changed how zombies were portrayed in movies and what they meant. Um, zombies in the Plague of Zombies kind of fit into the kind of um, uh, Haitian voodoo kind of inflected version of uh, of zombies that was familiar from earlier movies like White Zombie and involves black magic and things like that um, and doesn't involve flesh-eating or anything like that. But... Flesh-eating zombies are not... They just sort of... They just stumble around and just do what they're told. Yeah. And Martin Tin. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Although they are frightening. Um, you... No, they're very frightening. It's, it's, it's actually quite a scary film. I think it is one of the scarier Hammer films. And... Um... <clears throat> First of all, I think Andre Morel is great as the... One of the great things that Hammer did was it gave middle-aged actors the chance to be the hero. Yeah. And he's the hero. He's the kind of star. And he's the one who has fights with people and he, he rescues everybody. And it's great. And they, you know, actors like Clifford Evans and Andrew Keir were given the chance to sort of... They didn't have the conventional romantic lead. They had more interesting kind of characters um, playing the leading role. And I think he, he comes over really well in this film. It's a shame they didn't make a sequel... With him, with that character in, yes, he's he's dynamic. There, there is um, uh, there was an entry in the Mummy series from Hammer that John Gilling also wrote and directed, The Mummy Shroud, which has uh, Morel as the lead, and he's a similar kind of presence and a similar character. Um, but unfortunately, he doesn't last throughout that whole movie. No. Um, which is another one we'd like to talk about sometime. Um, I do think it's interesting that although this movie kind of predates George A. Romero's, um, you know, reinvention of of the zombie archetype, it does prefigure the fact that Romero was always using zombies as a way to comment on social problems. Um, And The Plague of the Zombies actually does that too, albeit in a kind of retrospective way with its... It's basically, there's a lot of class conflict in it, isn't it? It's about the kind of upper classes exploiting the lower. Um, you know, there's not, there's actually an explicit um, kind of critical um, subtext within it about um, the way that um, kind of the upper classes or the rich kind of go to nefarious ends to to uh, avoid having to share their wealth. Um, well, yes, you can, you can get that a lot in Hammer. In Hammer, aristocrats and the upper classes are invariably bad. Mm. Yeah, you know, through... From Dracula kind of downwards, it's sort of like, in, in Twins of Evil, it's the aristocrat who's the bad guy. 
and sort of all the goodies are sort of like the ordinary villagers kind of thing. You get that through the whole of Hammer. And in this, certainly, yes, there's that feeling of he is the wicked squire. He thinks he can do whatever he wants. He can exploit people. You know, he's 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 using these zombies to work this mine to make money. I mean, that's... Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, there is that there. It's, um, and it's interesting. It's an interesting film because it's Hammer... Yeah, doing what it does best, but in a, it's, it's doing something different. It's doing something new, like the reptile. The reptile's also um, that it's it's a it's a new idea. It's something. It's not another vampire or whatever. It's uh, and that's what makes it interesting. It's sort of like it's it's uh, they're doing something different, but they're doing it with all the hammer expertise and all the hammer style. Yeah, although there is um, an interesting point that's made by Jonathan Rigby in his book English Gothic where he says that the plague of the zombies can be regarded in a way as the the most faithful adaptation that Hammer did of Bram Stoker's Dracula because yeah. al- although it's zombies, not vampires, um, you've got the aristocratic villain, you've got the Van Helsing-type character, which is Andre Morel's character, You've got Lucy, the young woman who becomes a vampire in Dracula, is um, changed into the Jacqueline Pierce character who becomes a zombie. Um, uh, you know, the, the, quite a lot of the ca- the character archetypes and the plot developments are there. So I think if you're a, a fan or a scholar of Dracula, it's a film worth checking out for that as well. Yeah, yes, yeah, yes. I thought of that, but yeah, that's that's interesting. Yes. John Carson would have made a very good Dracula. Yes, he certainly would have. Yeah, and I mean, he is in one of the Hammer Dracula films, isn't he? Taste the blood of Dracula, but he he doesn't play the Count. Um, it's still Christopher Lee, as he is in nearly all of them, except the very last one, The Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires, and that's a Which shame. We'll also talk about at some stage. I'm looking forward to that one. It's yes. always fun to talk about. So. But is there anything else you'd like to say about the plague of the zombies? Um, well, it's interesting because I, I mentioned in previous podcasts, I, I always think about the circumstances when I first watch these films. And most of the films we talk about, the Hammer ones, the Amicus ones and all that, I watched uh, when I was very young, when I was a teenager. But this, I didn't. I didn't watch this until maybe when I was in my 20s or even my 30s the first time. So there's no nostalgic element to it. Uh, it's a film for me that kind of stands up so I like it because of its its own merits. Yeah, it's it's a really good film, um, and it is a film I watch every so often. I think it, I think it's just extremely well done, and it's interesting and it's eerie, uh, and it's it, again it's got like doing something. It's set in Cornwall. It's not set in Transylvania. It's not set in Karlstadt or whatever. All the other ones are set. It's set in Cornwall. It's set in in England. So and that makes it interesting. It's a different location and it's a different monster. The zombies aren't evil; they just control. They just do what they're told. It's it's the the squires. The yeah, and all, all, although the source of um, danger in the film is essentially voodoo, again, yeah. it's it's not something which would have been dangerous by itself. It's only uh, a threat because it's been co-opted by this colonizer. Guy and brought back to Britain for um, to to use for his own purposes. So, and it's quite it's strangely unique that, as you say, most too many I think of the Hammer films are, are actually not about Britain and not set within Britain um, because they 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 kind of strike this style of creating this kind of mythical uh, 
a kind of middle European setting that they often go back to. Always a set, but you know we always talk about Hammers being very British. British, but they made relatively few films that were set in Britain. Yeah, and and this is one of them, and it works really well. And they use Cornwall really well. It sort of it makes Cornwall seem quite exotic and quite sort of. Because I used to go to Cornwall on holidays when I was younger, when I was with my dad. So I know Cornwall quite well, and it makes it seem quite a sort of. It's a very nice place, but in this film, gives it a sort of atmosphere. It's very atmospheric. Yeah, yeah. All all films need good atmosphere and mood, and this sort of. It's beautifully shot and designed. It's got the complete dream team, the, the amazing musical score of James Bernard. It's got the photography of Arthur Grant. It's got the sets by Bernard Robinson. Uh, it, you know, it it's really is firing on all cylinders. Um, yeah, it's got the A-team. It's got all the top people making it. Yeah. Uh, except the only thing it's missing is Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee. Or, but the actors they've got are... Just, just as, as good. good. Just as good. Um and- it's you know. more interesting that it is Andre Merrill and John Carson because you know they're they're doing it differently. You you know how Peter Cushing and Lee would do it, as great as they are, but here different actors are playing it, so they're giving it a different feel. Yeah, yeah, um, and, and having fun doing it as well, and I think that Things communicates. So there's a story that Andre Morel, who was married to Joan Greenwood, lucky devil. Oh yeah. Uh, he didn't tell John Greenwood that he was working on a zombie film because he thought <laughs> he thought she might disapprove. Right. So, I don't know whether that's true or not, but that's what I've heard. No, he's great. I'm a load of time, so he must have uh, enjoyed it. Yeah, that's true. I think um, apparently, uh, I mean, apart from the Hammer films, his major claim to genre uh memory is the fact that he was Professor Quatermass um, for the BBC in 1958 and when Hammer came to remake that Quatermass story in 1967 apparently they asked him first if he'd like to reprise the role and he turned it down maybe he just felt I've done that before Um, and I'm glad he did because it it allowed uh, Andrew Keir to step in and and give a great performance in that movie And, and both of those takes on that story the bbc one and the hammer one now stand for us to look at and they're both great in different ways i hope we well, have to... again it's part of that mid-60s resurgence it's another classic hammer film great film when they're really you know going for it and, and yeah so um i would say that the only real downside to the plague of the zombies is that the young leads who are brooke williams and diane claire are not the best ever um, they're a little bit stiff. Although I do quite like Diane Clare, actually. It's it's well, the problem no. is more on his side. I think she's dubbed, so. Oh right, I didn't but, know yeah, that. She's a bit. I I find her a bit weak. Mm. And I just William. She's a good actor. He's in Where Eagles Dare. Yes, so, he get, he gets killed right at the beginning, doesn't he, of Where Eagles Dare? He doesn't do much. But he's a good actor, but he's just he's playing. I saw an interview with John Carson where he said that. Uh, He's not sorry for Brooke Williams because he was playing the sort of like the nice chap, the, the romantic lead, which is never very interesting. Whereas he, John Carson, was playing the wicked villain. And so he, he kind of sort of felt sorry for Brooke Williams because you've got nowhere, not much to do with that part. You've just got to be nice and good and everything. I think he does it well. I think all, I think all the acting's good. Yeah. No, that, but, no, there's no bad acting in it. Um, it's just that they stand out as not being quite up to the standard being set by most of the other people in the movie but you know there we go um howard we've we've run over our time 
So okay. I, I think uh, that pretty much sums up our recommendation of The Plague of the Zombies. I think the last word on that movie should be Andre Morel's last word. It is simply the word zombie. <laughs> I love that bit. It also says Haiti as well, which is very... Oh, yes. Yeah. Haiti all the time, I think so. Haiti or something. No, it's great. It's on the Horror Channel sometimes, folks. Keep an eye out and enjoy. Thanks, Howard. We'll be back with another Back of Death next time. Cheerio. Um, it's the end of the episode, so that means recommendations. What have we got, folks? Kirsty? Um, so a nice segue from uh, fun to more fun is um, I've been meaning to watch this for a long time and only got round to watching it a couple of weeks ago um, as a sort of Saturday night movie um, with uh, my better half um, and that is uh, it's on Amazon Prime as above so below <gasps> it's so good uh, it's such a fun yeah. 90 minutes I mean completely ridiculous is that the one in the Paris under Paris yeah I love the poster of that I've not seen it yeah well, bit, when he sees his friend in the burning car, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. it's a lot, a lot of fun. Yeah, um, I mean, it's fan footage. Uh, I'm not. It's, the the one thing that slightly annoys me is the sort of I always think when you have got fan footage, the kind of logic of the the you know the, the logic of the cameras needs to work. So we've got multiple cameras, people with headcams, so that's all good. But who the hell is editing this footage? Is my one question. But it's found. Mm. Somebody else said it's it. No, 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 no. But no, it, it doesn't work. But it is a lot of. It is a lot of fun. It's really it good. Um, and I, I, what I've discovered it more recently is that I really like um, horror films where, like, I'm not, gen I'm not like deeply disturbed to my very core. I like it to be, you know, like Host was a kind of roller coaster. Mm. And they've experienced, and and uh, as above, so below gave me that kind of that, that experience. Yeah. So it's a, I, oh, nice. yeah, that really that's a great one. Fantastic. Yes. Okay, Stella, what have you got? I'm going to recommend um, a series called The Act. You may have heard of it. Yeah, it's um, you can watch it on Stars Play if you got it via Amazon. If you get your seven day free trial, you'll be able to watch it. Um, so it's based on the true story of Gypsy Rose Blanchard and Dee Dee Blanchard and the Munchausen syndrome by proxy incident where the mother kept the daughter ill and sick and had her treated for leukaemia and kept her in a wheelchair and she had a tube in her belly and shaved her head and all sorts of stuff in order to um, get money. And the daughter Gypsy believed that she was sick as well. And uh, she eventually um, escapes and she murders her mother and gets and leaves that way so it's, it's a true story it happened in the gypsy killed her mother in 2015 um wow. uh, so it's true um there's various podcasts about it as well but um joey king plays gypsy rose which is the daughter and patricia arquette plays dd blanchard and she was nominated for an emmy i think for her role as dd um, it's it's really really good. It's a tough watch because obviously it's it's essentially it's about child abuse, um, but it's the the two performances from Joey King and Patricia Arquette are incredible. And it's really 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 good, really good. And Chloe, what's she called? Chloe Sevigny. 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 Yeah. She's Seven, in it as well. Yeah. She's oh, plays the, the neighbour. But yeah, it's on Stars Play. You can get a seven day free trial and watch it. You'll be able to watch it in a couple of days. But it's really good. Oh, wow. Super. Thank the you, Stella. Yeah. Ian? Well, I've been very, very busy, but I'll just say 
I'm still hooked to, as I know Kirsty is, to Battersea Park's Ghost, <laughs> which is especially great because it's it's not just, hey, we made this thing and 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 then we recorded it and we're sticking it out one a week. They're sticking it out one a week and then it's interacting with the world because people are coming in with their own theories and their own ideas and they just listen to the... Um, and they're now having to sort of create bonus episodes as well. Um, which one one was just I just listened to one today um, and someone who they hadn't planned to be in the thing but she was a neighbor of the haunted house she was living next door when she was five years old so they have you know this is a haunting that's real but they've sort of dramatized it and they've got interview with the girl who was possessed at the time who's now in her 70s um, and it's just brilliant but the you know it's a baffle gab get baffle gab are always good as you know, and uh, and I think this is probably the maybe their best. It's just very wow. so multi layered, and it's not mm. just you know it won't be the same listening to it all together. Although I would say to everyone, go and listen to it all together. It's the fact that you know people have interacted with the show and changed the show as it's been going along. Cool with their different ideas, and it it's it's I don't know things that happen, things that happen in that house. <laughs> it's bunker, it does right? make you it does make you go is there is there something or <laughs> yeah I, I must no, get on that third law of thermodynamics but anyway <laughs> <laughs> don't burst the bubble <laughs> yeah yeah okay cool. yeah, I would no, say, no. so yet again I will recommend um see parts guys cool Okay, yeah, I must great. get on that. Will one of you remind me in a few days <laughs> that Absolutely. I want to listen to it? <laughs> Absolutely. Because <laughs> yeah. I keep going, yes, and then forgetting. Well, it's, it'll be on there for a month, but it, the last episode's right. on this week, whatever day it's. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, Tomorrow. Yeah. Well, it'll be it'll be yesterday when the podcast. Is, this podcast is out. So it's Thursday, basically. Yeah. yeah. So it's out Thursday. So, yeah. so it's already out there. It was the somebody Thursday. remind me. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that ending was amazing. Right, smooth. Yeah. Well, that's why I'm recommending it. Yeah. Uh, very quickly, my recommendation is uh, The Strain, um, which I've started Yay. watching since I uh, began to watch it ages ago um, when we were talking about it on this show and, uh, and then couldn't find the rest of it anywhere. Well, it's appeared. It's on, uh, for those of you who are subscribers to Disney+, Plus. Disney Plus now has a section called Star, which is where they put all their non-family material, basically all the back catalogue of 20th Century Fox and stuff, and that's where I found The Strain. There's lots of other stuff in there. It has a horror section. Um, it has it doesn't have The Omen, but it has Damien Omen too. So Harold and I <laughs> were talking about that on the podcast the other week, so go check that out. Um, Disney really, yeah. have, uh, really have captured us. There's no having children. <laughs> no plus, and now they've got this. And One Division is as good as everyone is saying. Fucking hell, One Division's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, I must. So good. I'm gonna have to get a month free trial and watch One Division. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's great. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Wow. And The Mandalorian and. Oh no, I'm watching that. <laughs> Brilliant. Anyway, I don't like Star Wars. 
This isn't Star Wars, it's just a Western where they all wear. No, yeah. <laughs> it's too late to start that conversation. Yeah. All right. It's nine o'clock. My friends, it's been wonderful. <laughs> Listeners, I hope you've loved listening to this extra long, extra in-depth podcast about Hannibal. <laughs> There's more where this came from. Don't you worry. We'll be back here next week talking about I Know Not What. Have a good week. <laughs> Thank you so much, my friends, Kirsty, Stella, Ian. It's been great fun, and we'll be back. (laughs) Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bon appetit. You have been listening to And Now the Podcast Starts. Produced and released by Ambidextrous Solutions Limited. Presented by Kirsty Warrow, T.D. Velasquez, Dr. Stella Gaynor, Ian Winterton, and Howard Whittaker. With special guests, Dr. Rebecca Williams and Dr. Laurie Hitchcock Morimoto. Special thanks to Greg Hume for our original theme music and to Brian Gorman for our original artwork. All dialogue and music clips from films, TV shows, and trailers are used for the purposes of criticism in the spirit of fair dealing as defined in UK law and fair use as defined in US law. No copyright infringement is intended. Please visit our home on the web, www.andnowpodcast.com, for more content and contact details. Or visit our Facebook pages, at AndNowPod or at LeeCushingPod. Follow us on Twitter, at AndNowPodcast or at LeeCushingPodcast. If you'd like to donate to us, please visit patreon.com forward slash and now podcast.